This is Audible. Harper Business and Harper Audio present the Prosperity Paradox: How Innovation Can Lift Nations Out of Poverty, by Clayton M. Christensen, Afosa Ojomo, and Karen Dillon, read by Mike Chamberlain. Preface. I spent two years in the early 1970s serving as a Mormon missionary in South Korea, one of the poorest nations in Asia at the time. In South Korea, I witnessed firsthand the devastating effects of poverty. I lost friends to preventable illnesses and saw families routinely having to make impossible choices among putting food on the table, educating their children, or supporting the older generation. Suffering was part of daily life. I was so moved by that experience that when I received a Rhodes Scholarship to attend Oxford, I decided to study economic development with a focus on South Korea. I hoped that might lead to a position at the World Bank, where I could try to help solve the problems I had seen in my time in South Korea. The particular year I wanted to join, however, the World Bank wasn't hiring any more Americans. That option was closed to me. So in the twists and turns of fate, I ended up at Harvard studying business instead. But the haunting images of the impoverished country stayed with me. I am happy to say that when I visit South Korea today, it bears no resemblance to the South Korea I remember. In the decades since I lived there, South Korea has not only become one of the world's richest countries, but has also joined the respected ranks of the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development (OECD) countries. And has gone from a foreign aid recipient to a foreign aid donor. American journalist Fareed Zakaria has gone so far as to call South Korea the most successful country in the world. I could not agree more. South Korea's transformation in just a few decades is nothing short of miraculous. Unfortunately, such a dramatic transformation has not been possible for many other nations that resembled South Korea a few decades ago. By contrast, Burundi, Haiti, Niger, Guatemala, and many other countries that were desperately poor in the 1970s are still desperately poor. The questions that originally spurred my interest in helping South Korea years ago have continued to nag at me for decades. Why do some countries find their way to prosperity, while others languish in profound poverty? Prosperity, it turns out, is a relatively recent phenomenon for most countries. Most wealthy nations have not always been prosperous. Consider, for example, the United States. We may forget just how far America has come. Not too long ago, America too was desperately poor, rife with corruption, and chaotically governed. By almost any measure, America in the 1850s was more impoverished than present-day Angola, Mongolia, or Sri Lanka. Infant mortality at the time was roughly 150 deaths per 1,000 childbirths, three times worse than Sub-Saharan Africa's infant mortality rate in 2016. American society then, with a lack of stable institutions and infrastructures, looked nothing like it does today. But that is exactly why the story of America 
offers hope to poor nations everywhere. Finding a path out of poverty is possible. The question is how. For decades, we have studied how to stem poverty and create economic growth in poor countries, and we have seen some real progress. For example, the rate of extreme poverty globally decreased from 35.3% in 1990 to an estimated 9.6% in 2015. That represents more than 1 billion people being lifted out of poverty since 1990. But as dramatic as that statistic may be, it might be presenting a false sense of progress. Of the approximately 1 billion people who have been lifted out of poverty, the majority, approximately 730 million, are from one country, China. China was able to reduce its rate of extreme poverty from 66.6% in 1990 to less than 2% today. That is indeed impressive. But in some regions, such as Sub-Saharan Africa, the number of people living in extreme poverty has actually increased significantly. Even for those who are not technically living in extreme poverty, survival is still very precarious. Although it is true that we have certainly made some progress, there seems to be no consensus on how to eradicate poverty. The suggestions range from fixing dismal societal infrastructure, including education, healthcare, transportation, and so on, to improving institutions, to increasing foreign aid, to boosting foreign trade, and many others. But even those who disagree on the right solution would surely agree with the assessment that progress has been too slow. Consider this. Since 1960, we have spent more than $4.3 trillion in official development assistance trying to help poorer countries. Unfortunately, many of our interventions have not had the impact in poor countries that we'd hoped they would. In fact, many of the world's poorest countries in 1960, including Burundi, the Central African Republic, and Malawi, are still poor today. And even worse, at least 20 countries, after receiving billions of dollars worth of aid, were poorer in 2015 than they were in 1960. Afosa Ojomo, my co-author on this book and one of my former students at Harvard, knows firsthand the pain of failing despite well-intended efforts. His experience offers insight into the frustration surrounding so many once-hopeful projects designed to bring better living and working conditions to impoverished economies. Afosa is originally from Nigeria, but he has spent the bulk of his adult life living and working in the United States. So while he recognized the poverty that plagued poor countries, it was somewhat of a distant concern for him until he found himself reading the dedication in the book The White Man's Burden, New York University professor William Easterly's attack on Western efforts to aid impoverished countries. In this book, Easterly told the story of Amarach, a ten-year-old Ethiopian girl who rose at three each morning to fetch firewood. She then had to walk miles to sell the firewood in the market to help provide for her family. Afosa couldn't sleep that night after he read her story. No child deserved to live such a difficult life. So Afosa, together with some of his friends, set up a non-profit organization, Poverty Stops Here, to raise money to build wells in various parts of his native Nigeria. The lack of water is the first thing that hits you when you visit a poor community, Afosa later shared with me. Water is life. It's why there are so many water projects throughout the world. We just need to get people water. 
Everything starts there. In a similar vein, when you visit a poor country, the lack of quality education, unpaved roads, bad governance, and other poverty indicators are painfully obvious. Isn't it reasonable to assume that the answer to solving poverty lies in providing one or all of those things? AFOSA managed to raise more than $300,000 and identified five communities in which to help build wells. The day AFOSA and his supporters visited those communities to turn on the wells for the first time was one of unmitigated joy for both AFOSA and the local residents. I can imagine there are few more moving sights than seeing plentiful clean water coming from a well in a village that previously had none. But as it turned out, wells break down. About six months after building a new well, Afosa would get a call in his Wisconsin home that the water wasn't coming out anymore, and he would have to figure out from thousands of miles away how to get someone in Nigeria to go and fix it. Since all the wells his organization built were in rural areas, finding a skilled technician to source parts and go to the village was always challenging. One problem would be fixed and another would spring up. Today, only one of the five wells that Poverty Stops Here installed is still functional. Afosa and his friends, who had so earnestly set out to help these villages, reluctantly gave up on building additional wells. Poverty Stops Here, however, is not a unique story. There are more than 50,000 broken wells across Africa alone, according to a study by the International Institute for Environment and Development. In some communities, as many as 80% of the wells were broken. In one of the villages that Afosa targeted for a well, he noticed that there was already a broken-down well just a few hundred feet from the one Poverty Stops Here built having previously been installed by an international aid organization, but then abandoned. The experience was profoundly disheartening for Afosa, who was so eager to help alleviate suffering. His failure raised some difficult questions for him. If these vexing problems couldn't be solved by an injection of resources and goodwill, then what would help instead? Why do some efforts succeed and not others? Why do some countries fare better than others? Perhaps most profoundly, Afosa recognized that easing poverty, or the most obvious signs of poverty, may not solve the problem long term. Alleviating poverty is not the same as creating prosperity. We need to start thinking differently. We hope that this book will change the way you think about the problem of economic development, the questions that you ask, and the solutions you develop for helping communities that desperately need it. What do we mean by prosperity? There are some obvious and commonly used proxies for prosperity, such as access to education, health care, safety and security, good governance, and so on. The Legatum Prosperity Index, which ranks 148 nations in these categories, also includes several other metrics, such as environmental efforts. Not surprisingly, countries such as Norway, New Zealand, and Finland are top performers, while Sudan, Yemen, and Central African Republic are at the bottom of the index. While these measures are important in assessing the well-being of members of a society, we believe that an even more important proxy is access to gainful employment and upward social mobility. So, for the purposes of this book, 
We define prosperity as the process by which more and more people in a region improve their economic, social, and political well-being. This is an important distinction because we might classify some countries as rich but not particularly prosperous, such as nations that are endowed with valuable natural resources. Prosperity breeds increasing freedoms, economic, social, and political, and is less dependent on access to one or two singular resources like oil. And so, while some countries are rich and have figured out ways to distribute their riches to some of their citizens, we would not consider them prosperous because their riches have not bred a culture of inquiry, innovation, and a diversity of markets. They have not led to socioeconomic mobility for all, and those resources have not led to an environment in which prosperity will become sustainable after those natural resources run dry or lose their value in the future. This illustrates the importance of understanding what creates poverty. And so my co-authors, Afosa Ojomo and former Harvard Business Review editor Karen Dillon and I, have set out to investigate how poor nations can become prosperous. To make this book easier to read, we've written in the first person, my voice. But the thinking captured here is very much the product of our joint collaboration. Afosa and Karen have been co-authors in every sense of that word, and I'm grateful for their partnership and passion for trying to make the world a better place. We know many of you share our goals. We have written this book with four stakeholders in mind. First, we wrote this book for those in the development industry who are working diligently to rid the world of poverty. We applaud your efforts and hope that the approach we present in this book will help you think differently, perhaps even counterintuitively, about the problems you are trying to solve. Second, we wrote this for investors, innovators, and entrepreneurs looking to build successful enterprises in emerging markets. Your work plays a critical role in creating prosperity in low- and middle-income countries. The world needs you now more than ever. But our ideas here aren't built to drive you to invest in these countries purely out of a sense of civic responsibility. They're built on seeing potential opportunities that others might miss. Third, we wrote this book for the policymakers seeking to institute policies that spur development in their countries. There are few jobs in the world more difficult than that of a public servant in an under-resourced country. We hope that by providing a model for development grounded in theory, we will enable you to translate these ideas into development policies that are appropriate for your country's unique circumstances. Last and most important, we wrote this book for the 10-year-old children all over the world, like Amarich, who deserve a better life. This book is for residents of the villages in Nigeria that celebrated the gushing water from Afosa's wells, only to watch them break down months later. This book is for the fathers and mothers who work tirelessly to provide for their families but are unable to rise above a life of subsistence. And finally, we wrote The Prosperity Paradox for the increasing number of youth who, with each passing day, feel their hopes extinguishing because their world seems devoid of opportunity. We hope that this book reignites their confidence and optimism. A better future awaits them. A better future awaits us all.
Section 1 The Power of Market Creating Innovations. Chapter 1 An Introduction to the Prosperity Paradox. It's not an easy thing to be laughed at by serious people. And serious people laughed at me when I told them I wanted to build a telecommunications network in Africa 20 years ago. They told me all the reasons the project would never succeed. Somehow I just kept thinking, I know there are challenges, but why can't they see the opportunity? Mo Ibrahim. The idea in brief. Starving children on street corners. Slums without adequate clean water and sanitation. Hopeless prospects for employment amid a growing youth population. Most of us are moved by the painful signs of poverty we see in poor countries all around the world. According to the World Bank, more than 750 million people still live in extreme poverty, surviving on less than $1.90 a day. We all want to help. But what might seem to be the most obvious solution to these problems, directly assisting poor countries by investing to fix these visible signs of poverty, has not been as successful as many of us would like. You only have to look at the billions of dollars that have been channeled to these problems over the years with relatively slow progress to conclude that something is not quite right. With these efforts, we may be temporarily easing poverty for some. But we're not moving the needle enough. What if we considered this problem through a different lens? What if, instead of trying to fix the visible signs of poverty, we focused on creating lasting prosperity? This may require a counterintuitive approach, but one that will cause you to see opportunities where you might least expect them. In the late 1990s, When Mo Ibrahim first conceived of setting up a mobile phone company in Africa, people said he was, well, nuts. Everybody said Africa is a basket case, he recalls now. It's a dangerous place. It's full of dictators. It's full of crazy people who are all corrupt. In fact, people laughed when he shared his idea. Ibrahim, the former technical director for British Telecom, Who was running his own successful consulting firm, planned to develop from scratch a mobile communications network in sub Saharan Africa, where most people had never used a phone, let alone owned one. The African continent, which ranges from the bazaars of Morocco to the big business complexes of Johannesburg, is home to 54 countries. The total population of more than 1 billion is spread over 11.7 million square miles. More than three times the size of the United States. The vast majority of this territory had no existing infrastructure for old landline telephones, let alone the cell towers necessary for a mobile phone company to function. At the time, mobile phones were seen as an expensive toy for the rich, a luxury that the poor could not afford, and, more important, did not need. When many, including Ibrahim's clients and former colleagues, At the major telecommunication companies, assessed the opportunity in Africa, they noted the level of poverty, lack of infrastructure, fragility of governments, and even lack of access to water, health care, and education. They saw pervasive and palpable poverty permeating every aspect of society, not fertile territory for new business. But Ibrahim, to his credit, 
saw things differently. Instead of seeing just poverty, he saw opportunity. If you live far away from the village where your mother lives and you want to talk to her, you might have to make a seven-day journey, Ibrahim recalls now. If you could just pick up a device and speak to her instantly, what would be the value of that? How much money would you save? How much time? Notice that Ibrahim did not say, How will millions of Africans, for whom three meals a day is often a luxury, afford a mobile phone? Or, How can you justify the investments in infrastructure for a market that does not exist? He focused on the struggle to accomplish something important for which there were few good solutions. For Ibrahim, struggle represented enormous potential. This struggle often presents itself as non-consumption, where would-be consumers are desperate to make progress in a particular aspect of their lives, but there's no affordable and accessible solution to their problem. So they simply go without or develop workarounds, but their suffering continues, usually under the radar of conventional metrics used to evaluate business opportunities. But in that non-consumption, Ibrahim saw the chance to create a market. So with very little financial backing and just five employees, Ibrahim founded Celtel with the goal of creating a pan-African mobile telecommunications company. The obstacles were enormous. Creating the necessary cellular network infrastructure was a mind-boggling undertaking, done without relying on support from local governments or from major banks. Raising capital was so difficult that even after he'd proved his business model and reached predictable cash flow in the millions of dollars, banks still refused to lend him money. Ibrahim had to fund Celtel entirely with equity financing, a first in the telecommunications industry for a company of our size and scale, he explains. But that, and the many other challenges he faced, didn't deter him. Where there was no power, he provided his own power. Where there were no logistics, he developed his own. Where there was no education or health care, he provided training and health care for his staff. And where there were no roads, he either built makeshift roads or used helicopters to move equipment around. Ibrahim was fueled by the vision he had of the immense value of millions of Africans no longer having to struggle to keep in touch with one another. Eventually, he succeeded. In just six years, Celtel built operations in 13 African countries, including Uganda, Malawi, the two Congos, Gabon, and Sierra Leone, and gained 5.2 million customers. At the openings of many of Ibrahim's stores, it wasn't uncommon to see eager customers line up by the hundreds. Ibrahim's Celtel was so successful that by 2004, revenues had reached $614 million and net profits were $147 million. In 2005, when Ibrahim decided to sell the company, he did so for a handsome $3.4 billion. In such a short time, Ibrahim's Celtel unlocked billions of dollars worth of value from some of the poorest countries in the world. But Celtel was just the tip of the iceberg. Today, Africa is home to a sophisticated mobile telecommunications industry with numerous mobile phone companies, including Globacom, Maroc Telecom, Safaricom, MTN, Vodacom, Telcom, and others, providing more than 965 million mobile phone lines. 
These companies have not only raised billions of dollars in debt and equity financing, but by 2020, the industry is forecast to support 4.5 million jobs, provide $20.5 billion in taxes, and add more than $214 billion of value to African economies. Mobile phones have also unlocked value in other industries, such as financial technology, where companies now use phone usage records as a proxy for creditworthiness, extending credit to millions of creditworthy people who historically could not receive it. It may seem obvious now that mobile phones are ubiquitous all over the world and all over Africa, but remember that 20 years ago, Ibrahim saw what others did not. The market Mo Ibrahim built, and the difficulty and seemingly unlikely circumstances in which he built it, represents a solution to what we call the prosperity paradox. It may sound counterintuitive, but our research suggests that enduring prosperity for many countries will not come from fixing poverty. It will come from investing in innovations that create new markets within these countries. True and lasting prosperity, we have found, is not reliably generated through the flood of resources we are directly pouring into poor countries to improve poverty indicators such as low-quality education, subpar health care, bad governance, non-existent infrastructure, and many other indicators in which an improvement would suggest prosperity. Instead, we believe that for many countries, prosperity typically begins to take root in an economy when we invest in a particular type of innovation, market-creating innovation, which often serves as a catalyst and foundation for creating sustained economic development. Contrast Mo Ibrahim's approach to building Celtel with Afosa's efforts to build wells through his nonprofit organization, Poverty Stops Here. Poverty Stops Here is significantly smaller in size, but it is emblematic of the thinking behind many of the efforts undertaken to help poor countries today. For example, just 18.2% of official development assistance goes toward economic infrastructure projects, while the bulk funds education, health, social infrastructure, and other conventional development projects. In addition to aid from OECD countries, representing a vast majority of foreign aid expenditures, the pattern of expenditure also has a signaling effect to many others who donate and fund projects in poor countries. In a sense, it's what inspired AFOSA's projects, the belief that if we just channel resources into an impoverished area, we can fix poverty. But what might happen if we flipped the emphasis to innovation and market-based solutions rather than conventional development-based solutions? Or, to put it another way, what if we focused less on AFOSA-type projects and more on Mo Ibrahim-type ones? AFOSA wanted to fund and build more wells as a way of solving a problem. Ibrahim figured out how to solve problems by creating a market that targeted people who were willing to pay for a product. They're not the same thing. And as our research has demonstrated, they have very different long-term effects. Understanding the Prosperity Paradox I'm not an expert on every low- and middle-income economy, but my personal toolbox for solving difficult challenges relies on theory, which helps us get to the core of a problem.
Good theory helps us understand the underlying mechanism driving things. Consider, for example, the history of mankind's attempts to fly. Early researchers observed strong correlations between being able to fly and having feathers and wings. Stories of men attempting to fly by strapping on wings date back hundreds of years. They were replicating what they believed allowed birds to soar, wings and feathers. Possessing these attributes had a high correlation, a connection between two things, with the ability to fly. But when humans attempted to follow what they believed were best practices of the most successful flyers by strapping on wings, then jumping off cathedrals and flapping hard, they failed. The mistake was that, although feathers and wings were correlated with flying, the would-be aviators did not understand the fundamental causal mechanism, what actually causes something to happen, that enabled certain creatures to fly. The real breakthrough in human flight didn't come from crafting better wings or using more feathers, even though those are good things. It was brought about by Dutch-Swiss mathematician Daniel Bernoulli and his book Hydrodynamica, a study of fluid mechanics. In 1738, he outlined what was to become known as Bernoulli's Principle, a theory that, when applied to flight, explained the concept of lift. We had gone from correlation, wings and feathers, to causality, lift. Modern flight can be traced directly back to the development and adoption of this theory. But even the breakthrough understanding of the cause of flight still wasn't enough to make flight perfectly reliable. When an airplane crashed, researchers then had to ask, what was it about the circumstances of that given attempt to fly that led to failure? Wind? Fog? The angle of the aircraft? Researchers could then define what rules pilots needed to follow in order to succeed in each different circumstance. That's a hallmark of good theory. It dispenses its advice in if-then statements. As a business school professor, I'm asked hundreds of times a year to offer opinions on specific business challenges in industries or organizations in which I have no special knowledge. Yet I'm able to provide insight because there is a toolbox of theories that teach me not what to think, but how to think about a problem. Good theory is the best way I know to frame problems so that we ask the right questions to get us to the most useful answers. Embracing theory is not to mire ourselves in academic minutiae, but, quite the opposite, to focus on the supremely practical question of what causes what and why. This approach is at the core of this book. So how, then, does theory relate to our quest to create prosperity in many poor countries and ultimately make the world a better place? The appeal of many things that correlate with prosperity, of strapping on wings and feathers, is incredibly alluring. Who isn't moved by the sight of a newly dug well providing clean water to a deprived community? But in reality, no matter how many good efforts we invest in, if we aren't improving our understanding about what creates and sustains economic prosperity, we will be slow to make progress. In our study of the path to prosperity, Examining progress, or the lack thereof, in a variety of economies around the world, including Japan, Mexico, Nigeria, 
Russia, Singapore, South Korea, the United States, and several others, we have found that different types of innovations have vastly different impacts on the long-term growth and prosperity of a nation. We must be clear, however, that the process we will describe here and throughout this book does not explain how every prosperous country has emerged from poverty. For example, some countries, such as Singapore, started out with a government that prioritized economic development and wealth creation, while others, like the United States, began their march toward prosperity a long time ago and more gradually. All good theories must be used in context. They are only useful in certain circumstances. Every country in the world is different in size, population, culture, leadership, and capabilities. Those circumstances play a role in their destiny. But overall, we have found that investing in innovations, and more specifically, market-creating innovations, has proven a reliable path to prosperity for countries around the world. This book draws on the histories of now prosperous economies in order to illustrate the key elements of our theory, which describes the process by which the creation of new markets impacts a society. It is through this process that some of the poorest countries in the world were able to create billions of dollars worth of value and millions of jobs for their citizens. An Overlooked Path to Prosperity Our thinking focuses on what we have identified as critical drivers for creating and sustaining prosperity for many countries, finding opportunity in struggle, investing in market-creating innovations, which, among other things, creates the jobs that help grow a local economy, and executing a poll strategy of development in which the necessary institutions and infrastructures are pulled into a society when new markets demand them, which we will discuss in more detail throughout this book. All of these ideas and themes are essential to solving the prosperity paradox, and you will see them repeated and examined from different perspectives through the innovations and the stories we share here. When we talk about innovation, we don't just mean high-tech or feature-rich products. Our definition of innovation refers to something rather specific, a change in the processes by which an organization transforms labor, capital, materials, and information into products and services of greater value. Market-creating innovations transform complex and expensive products and services into simple and more affordable products, making them accessible to a whole new segment of people in a society whom we call non-consumers. Every economy is made up of consumers and non-consumers. In prosperous economies, the proportion of consumers for many products often surpasses that of non-consumers. Non-consumers are people who are struggling to make progress in some way, but have been unable to do so because, historically, a good solution has been beyond reach. This does not mean there isn't a solution on the market, but often non-consumers are unable to afford existing solutions or lack the time or expertise required to successfully use the product. Market-creating innovations can ignite the economic engine of a country. Successful market-creating innovations have three distinct outcomes. 
First, by their very nature, they create jobs as more and more people are required to make, market, distribute, and sell the new innovations. Jobs are a critical factor in assessing the prosperity of a country. Second, they create profits from a wide swath of the population, which are then often used to fund most public services in society, including education, infrastructure, healthcare, and so on. And third, they have the potential to change the culture of entire societies. As we will show, many prosperous countries today were once poor, corrupt, and badly governed. But the proliferation of innovations began a process that helped transform these economies. In the United States, for instance, market-creating innovations like the Singer sewing machine, Eastman Kodak's film cameras, and Ford's Model T, innovations we discuss in detail later, helped cultivate a culture of innovation that drastically changed American society. Once new markets that serve non-consumers are created, these markets pull in other necessary components, infrastructure, education, institutions, and even a change in culture, to ensure the market's survival, as we'll explain in detail throughout this book. This is how a society's trajectory can begin to change. Elements of our model can be seen in what Ibrahim did when he built Celtel. First, in the most unlikely of circumstances, he developed an innovation that made a historically complex and expensive product more affordable so that millions of people could more easily have access. And, in so doing, he created a vibrant market that not only directly created thousands of jobs for people, but also enabled the creation of other industries, such as financial services and mobile health. Second, Ibrahim pulled in the resources he needed to build his company. Because he pulled only the resources he needed into a new, large, and profitable market he was creating, the things he built were able to be sustained. This is a theme we will keep coming back to because of its importance in helping us make smart investments. Third, Ibrahim's Celtel was also developed with a focus on local citizens. For example, instead of developing a business model where customers had to pay monthly cell phone bills, as is the case in wealthier countries with citizens with higher earning power, Ibrahim introduced prepaid cards. New customers could purchase these cards for as little as 25 U.S. cents, resulting in many more purchases. In addition to that, 99% of the jobs he created were held by native Africans. While Ibrahim's efforts may seem anomalous, especially today, when we expect poor country governments to take care of many of the things Ibrahim took care of, as is the case in many prosperous countries, we will show that his efforts are little different from those of many innovators responsible for igniting the flames of prosperity in their countries. Certainly, for nations to sustain long-term prosperity, they ultimately need good governments that foster and support a culture of innovation. Market-creating innovators can, however, light the fire, and governments can fan the flame. We believe that by understanding how market-creating innovation can ignite and catalyze good governance, a pattern we observed in many of today's prosperous countries, we can help create long-term, sustainable prosperity.
A guide to this book. What might seem hopeless on the surface is often actually an opportunity to create new and thriving markets. This insight is not only important for the stakeholders actively trying to make things better, such as governments and NGOs, non-governmental organizations, and others in the development industry, but for innovators and entrepreneurs who might not have seen opportunity before now. For instance, instead of seeing the roughly 600 million people in Africa who don't have electricity as only a sign of their immense poverty, we should see them as a vast market creation opportunity waiting to be captured. It should be a call to innovate, not a flag of caution. It is in that spirit that we offer you the ideas in this book. We understand we are wading into complicated territory in writing about economic development, but we hope that the models, stories, and cases we share here provide you with fresh perspective. We have written this book in four sections, detailed below, to help you follow our thinking and its practical applications in the world. In section one, we explain the importance of innovation in creating prosperity in an economy. We detail how a particular type of innovation, market creating, serves as a strong foundation for generating and sustaining lasting prosperity. In section two, we illustrate our model by providing examples of how innovation and the culture it creates have impacted the United States, Japan, South Korea, and Mexico. In section three, we focus on the perceived barriers to development. We discuss the relationship between market-creating innovations and the development of good institutions, the reduction of corruption, and the construction and maintenance of a nation's infrastructures. In our conclusion, we discuss the importance of turning the prosperity paradox into a prosperity process, and review some key principles of this book. In the appendix. We profile several new market opportunities and development efforts by entrepreneurs, governments, and NGOs to change the game in different parts of the globe. We hope this helps those of you seeking opportunity to think differently about where and how you might spend your precious resources to create wealth and generate prosperity. We know that there are few issues more complex than creating prosperity in poor countries. And we wade into this debate with the hope that our thinking will spur new ways of tackling these entrenched and heartbreaking problems. At the core, this book is about celebrating the power and potential of innovation to change the world. But it is, we hope, just the start of a worthwhile conversation. Chapter two. Not all innovations are created equal. One of the things that people don't understand is that markets are creations. They are not something which we can just find. A market has to be created. Ronald Coase, 1991 Nobel laureate in economics. The idea in brief. Many of us understand the value of building strong institutions. And developing a nation's infrastructure, however, the role of innovation isn't quite as clear. We know it's important, but because innovation means different things to different people, 
What's not widely recognized is how different types of innovations can impact an economy. In this chapter, we will describe how we categorize innovation into three types, sustaining, efficiency, and market creating, and explain the different impact each has on an organization and an economy. While all innovations are important to keeping an economy vibrant, one type in particular, market-creating innovation, plays a significant role, providing a strong foundation for sustained economic prosperity. When a country's prosperity is not improving, in spite of what might seem to be a lot of activity within its borders, the country might not have a growth problem. Instead, we believe it might have an innovation problem. Ever since I published The Innovator's Dilemma, in which I explained how great companies are sometimes blind to the threat posed by upstarts, I've worked with hundreds of corporations to help them tackle their own dilemmas. At the core of that work is my theory of disruptive innovation, which describes how a company with fewer resources is able to challenge more established businesses by introducing simpler, more convenient, and more affordable innovations to an overserved and overlooked segment of customers, ultimately redefining the industry. In the decades since I published my thinking, the theory has taken root in the business community and others, including education and healthcare. As such, I'm regularly peppered with questions about my theory and how it applies to one specific industry or another. While I know that I will never be an expert on every industry. I have found that I can consistently turn to my toolbox of theories to help people see through a different set of lenses to view problems in a new way. A few years ago, after I gave a talk at a CEO summit at Innisight, the consulting firm I co-founded, an executive made an observation that reminded me of the importance of putting on the right set of lenses to begin to solve a problem. At our company, we categorize everything in the research and development group as. Innovation, she said, but based on your presentation, I can see that there are different types of innovation, and they seem to achieve different goals. We need to restructure R and D at my organization to reflect what we're really trying to accomplish. If we're ever going to truly grow through our innovation, we can't think of it as just one uniform thing. The executive was right. Not all innovations are created equal. Over the years. Our research has found that there are three types of innovation: sustaining innovation, efficiency innovation, and market-creating innovation. None of the types of innovation is inherently bad or good, but each type plays a unique role for organizations trying to sustain their growth. As I thought about the executive's observation about choosing the right type of innovation to secure her company's future. I realized that the insight applied much more broadly. We tend to do the same thing when we talk about all the innovation activities happening within an economy. We often categorize all innovation activities in the same way. We use proxies such as patent applications, investment in research and development, and quality of scientific research institutions to assess the innovation prowess of a country. But if different types of innovation affect organizations differently, doesn't it stand to reason that different types of innovations will impact economies differently as well? Economies, after all, are largely defined by the firms, public and private, within them, 
and innovation, as we defined in the last chapter as a change in the processes by which an organization transforms labor, capital, materials, and information into products and services of greater value, is what most firms do. Note that innovation is not the same thing as invention, which describes the process of creating something entirely new that has never existed before. Innovations are often borrowed from one country to another and from one firm to another, and then improved upon. Thus, we take as our unit of analysis innovation and seek to understand how the type, scale, and impact on a company influences the broader economy. Is this just an academic distinction that doesn't matter in the real world? Not at all. In my classroom, my focus is always on the importance of understanding what causes what to happen and why. To make that point to my students, every semester I stand in front of my class with a pen or a piece of chalk in my hand, and then I drop it and just watch it fall to the floor. As I stoop over to pick it up, I grouse, you know what? I just hate gravity. But gravity doesn't care. It always pulls you down. The point is, whether we consciously think about it or not, gravity is always at work. But if we do consciously think about it and learn how gravity works, we can harness gravity for our own goals. The same thinking holds true for innovation. If we understand what type of innovation causes what to happen, we can harness it for our own goals. Knowing these differences is a crucial first step in understanding what leads to sustainable economic development. Sustaining Innovations Sustaining innovations are improvements to existing solutions on the market and are typically targeted at customers who require better performance from a product or service. My friends who work in the consumer packaged goods industries call this skews for news when they create new flavors or colors or features of an existing product so they can generate some excitement in consumers who are already purchasing their product. Think about Unilever's Lipton tea brand. Today, there are almost as many Lipton tea flavors as there are people on the planet. Or at least it feels that way. From flavors such as matcha green tea and mint to others like green iced tea, the brand is developing new and exciting products to capture more and more of an existing tea-drinking market, or at least retain its market share. These are sustaining innovations. They are not designed to pull in new tea-drinking customers per se. They are substitutive in character. They are important for the Lipton brand and for customers to know the company is not stale, but the new berry hibiscus flavor will not necessarily create a market of entirely new tea drinkers. Sustaining innovations are often sold for more money and at a higher margin. Heated seats in our cars are a good idea, especially if the automakers can sell us the cars for more money, but they are usually targeted at existing car-buying customers. They aren't what made people stop using horses for transportation. Sustaining innovations are all around us and, in effect, are a critical component of our economies. They are important for companies and countries to remain competitive, but they have a very different impact on an economy than the other two types of innovations, market creating and efficiency. Companies rarely need to build new sales 
distribution, marketing, and manufacturing engines when they develop sustaining innovations in a mature market because they are selling to a relatively known segment of the population in a largely established way. As a result, when compared with market-creating innovations, sustaining innovations have a very different effect on job creation, on profit generation, and on changing the culture in a region. Consider three concentric circles, with each circle representing a different market composed of different members of a society. It's a simple illustration, but we hope it makes our point easy to follow. Market A represents the smallest, wealthiest, and most skilled consumers. Market B surrounds Market A and represents a larger but less wealthy and less skilled set of consumers. And similarly, Market C surrounds Market B. It represents the largest segment, but also the least wealthy and least skilled. Sustaining innovations in any of the concentric circles, no matter the size of the market, are typically concerned with selling more products to the same customers in that particular market. Understandably, many companies are drawn to selling to the wealthier segments of the economy because they hope that by adding new features and benefits to an existing product or service, they will be able to continue to sell more and more profitably. Sustaining innovations do lead to some growth, and they do enable development. But as you can see, the impact of this growth is limited by the number of consumers in the segment targeted. Also, competition for customers in the wealthier segment is very fierce, as many other companies will be vying for these consumers, too. From time to time, a sustaining innovation might attract a new customer, but it is usually incidental, as companies typically need to develop a different strategy for customers in a different segment or circle. Let us consider a detailed illustration below. The Sustaining Innovation Strategy of America's Best-Selling Car Few cars have sold better in America than the Toyota Camry. At the time of this writing, the Camry had been America's best-selling car for 19 of the past 20 years. But even with the Camry's remarkable success, sales of the Camry have remained relatively flat since 2000. While the innovations Toyota has made in its Camry over the past 20 years have kept the company competitive, relevant, and profitable, these innovations have not had a grand impact on the Camry's growth. In 1997, Toyota sold 394,397 Camrys. Twenty years later, in 2017, Toyota sold 387,081 Camrys. 2007 was the best year for the Camry when Toyota sold 473,108 units. Sustaining innovations for the Camry are very important to Toyota. That's what helped keep the Camry as the best-selling car in America for 19 of the past 20 years. But steady Camry sales do not represent a new growth engine for Toyota, nor do they represent major growth for the economy. Camry sales are targeted at the consumption economy. Customers Toyota and other car makers can already see, count, and reach with existing distribution channels. Camry sales generate steady revenue year after year, often by retaining an existing customer who simply traded up to a better model of a car he or she already owned.
But even as a reliable bestseller, Toyota does not necessarily need to build a new manufacturing plant and hire entirely new staff every time it decides to release a new version of the Camry. It also does not hire a new sales force, build a new distribution channel, or invest in an entirely new design team when working on a new model. The company, as do most companies, simply repurposes its existing resources. As a result of this repurposing, Toyota does not need as much capital or as many people to develop new models of the Camry. No new factories are built. Few new workforces are employed. Sustaining growth in a mature and established market. The Camry's innovation trajectory is not an unusual story. Most innovations are sustaining in nature, and that's actually a good thing for a company and its customers who might want a better product or service. Examples of sustaining innovations range from faster processors in our computers to more memory in our phones. The original iPhone was a market-creating innovation, catalyzing a new market for smartphones and corresponding apps. But the iPhone X is a sustaining innovation. The vast majority of iPhone X customers, people who were able to shell out $1,000, were simply trading up and now have access to facial recognition, a super retina display, and an OLED screen. Or consider TaylorMade's new P790 golf club, which the company promises will help golfers experience feel, forgiveness, and workability unlike any iron of this caliber. It retails for $1,1299.99. Surely, TaylorMade's P790 golf clubs are not bringing vastly more consumers into the sport and, as such, not creating many new jobs relative to its existing job numbers. But just like the iPhone X, they are certainly making TaylorMade more money, making the company more vibrant, and stamping their place as a relevant player in their industry. We cannot overstate the importance of sustaining innovations. Sustaining innovations don't refer only to product innovations. They often come in the form of services as well. For instance, at least once a month, my bank sends me a new offer for a credit card, an innovation that has existed since 1950. It's already an enormous market. America's credit card debt currently stands at just over $1 trillion, an amount larger than the GDPs of Mexico, Turkey, and Switzerland. My bank isn't necessarily trying to create a new market for credit cards. Instead, it is trying to make more money by selling me extra services, such as travel insurance, warranty extensions, and cash back on whatever I spend. The same thing happens when my mobile phone provider tries to sell me larger and larger data plans. Those are sustaining innovations designed to sell more services and get more money from customers like me. Efficiency Innovations Efficiency innovations, as the name implies, enable companies to do more with fewer resources. In other words, as companies squeeze as much as possible from existing and newly acquired resources, their underlying business model and the customers they are targeting with their products remain the same. Efficiency innovations are crucial for the viability of companies as industries become more crowded and competitive. Typically, efficiency innovations are process innovations. They focus on how the product is made. With efficiency innovations, 
companies can become more profitable and, critically, free up cash flow. Efficiency innovations exist in every industry and are a critical part of managing the levers of improving profitability and retaining customers in any organization. But efficiency innovations, while good for the productivity of an organization, are not always good for existing employees. Think of the plants that have shut down or been relocated as a result of outsourcing, one of the markers of efficiency innovations at play. By themselves, efficiency innovations tend not to create jobs. That is, unless the capital these innovations free up is funneled back into developing market-creating innovations. More on this later. Consider the resource extraction industry, a sector that thrives on investments in efficiency innovations. Due to the fact that oil, gas, gold, diamonds, and many of the other resources we extract and process are commodities, the typical manager in this industry is always looking for ways to improve efficiency and decrease cost, a process that frees up cash flow and improves margins. All you need to do is look at any nation with a vast resource extraction sector and assess whether those sectors are consistently adding more and more jobs to the economy even as they extract more resources. Take the United States, for example. In 1980, there were approximately 220,000 employees in the oil and gas extraction industry responsible for producing roughly 8.6 million barrels of oil. By 2017, the number of employees in the sector had fallen by more than a third to about 146,000, but production had increased to over 9.3 million barrels a day. The figures are not much better for Nigeria, one of the world's largest oil producers. According to data from Nigeria's National Bureau of Statistics, the oil and gas sector employs only about 0.01% of the Nigerian workforce, even though the oil and gas sector accounts for more than 90% of Nigeria's export revenue and more than 70% of government revenues. Efficiency innovations free up cash flows, but they rarely add new jobs to an economy. In most cases, they eliminate more than they create. Because the very nature of resource extraction is efficiency-driven, countries such as Nigeria, Venezuela, Saudi Arabia, South Africa, Qatar, and others that rely heavily on resource extraction cannot depend on that sector for job creation for their citizens. We can't stress this enough. Neither efficiency nor sustaining innovations are inherently bad for a country. In fact, they are good for our economies but they play very different roles in fostering sustainable economic growth and job creation. While they keep our economies competitive and vibrant, freeing up much-needed cash for future investments, neither efficiency nor sustaining innovations in mature markets seed new growth engines. That is the result of something completely different, what we call market-creating innovations. Market-creating Innovations Market-creating innovations do exactly what the name implies. They create new markets. But not just any new markets. New markets that serve people for whom either no products existed or existing products were neither affordable nor accessible for a variety of reasons. These innovations transform complicated and expensive products into ones that are so much more affordable and accessible 
that many more people are able to buy and use them. In some cases, they even create entirely new product categories. Mo Ibrahim Celtel made a previously expensive solution, mobile telecommunications, simple and affordable to millions and millions of new customers. In a sense, market-creating innovations democratize previously exclusive products and services. Although the scale of the impact of a new market depends on the characteristics of the innovation being democratized, for example, not all innovations will have the impact that democratizing a car has, the impact of market-creating innovations is significant when compared to that of other types of innovations. Market-creating innovations collectively serve as a foundation for many of today's wealthy economies and have helped lift millions of people out of poverty in the process. This type of innovation not only creates markets, but jobs too. This is because as new markets with new consumers are born, companies must hire more people to make, market, distribute, sell, and service the product. Market-creating innovations have the potential to create what we call local and global jobs. Local and Global Jobs Local jobs are jobs that must be created in order to serve the local market. They are also jobs that are not as easily transferable or outsourced to other countries. For example, jobs in design, advertising, marketing, sales, and after-sales service typically fall into this category. They are often higher-paying jobs when compared with global jobs. Global jobs, while also important, are more easily moved to other countries to take advantage of lower wages. Manufacturing and sourcing of raw materials are perhaps the biggest culprits. With the advances in global supply chain management, global jobs are often at risk of moving across national boundaries to the next most efficient or low-cost labor market. By contrast, local jobs are essential to support market-creating innovations. They are less vulnerable to the allure of lower wages elsewhere. When innovators create a new market, targeted at a large population that has historically been unable to afford the product, non-consumers, the innovator must hire many more people not only to make the product or service, but also to get it to the new customers. The bigger the non-consumption, the bigger the potential market. And the bigger the market, the bigger the impact. This dedication to market-creating innovations often establishes the underlying infrastructure, including education, transportation, communications, and institutions, such as government policies and regulations, and other components of many of today's thriving societies. This activity creates a virtuous cycle in economies that further fosters the development of more new markets. Another virtue of investing in market-creating innovations is that when local entrepreneurs develop innovations and reap the rewards from the innovation's success, the returns are more likely to fund future innovations locally. Consider this. Of the more than $70 trillion worth of global assets under management, less than $2 trillion are targeted at foreign direct investments, FDI. Most money stays home. In Chapter 1, we explained that investing in market-creating innovations does not describe how every prosperous country today developed. 
Countries are too different in size, capabilities, and other parameters, and we don't assert that there is only one strategy for development. Market-creating innovations, however, do provide us with one of the most valuable strategies for creating prosperity in today's poor countries. Five keys to targeting market-creating innovations. Because market-creating innovations rely on having the foresight to see what others cannot, it's always easier to identify market-creating innovations in hindsight than to have the foresight to develop them. Before cars, computers, and bank accounts became the norm for most of us, entrepreneurs first had to create a new market for these products and services. What I have found is that most new markets do not make sense at the onset of their formation, especially to experts in the particular industry. In 1939, for instance, a New York Times reporter covering the 1939 New York World's Fair reported that the TV will never be a serious competitor for radio, because people must sit and keep their eyes glued on a screen. The average American family hasn't time for it. We may snicker or sigh in despair at how wrong that prediction was, but most of us would likely have agreed with that assessment at the time. Much the same way many predicted 20 years ago that mobile phones in Africa were exclusively for the rich and would never take root. So how do you go about targeting market-creating innovations? They have to be evaluated through the right lens, both for entrepreneurs who see potential to build something from scratch. And for existing organizations who want to drive market-creating innovations into their innovation portfolio mix, here is a helpful frame of reference for five attributes that entrepreneurs and managers should look for as they consider creating new markets. One, business models that target non-consumption. A majority of the innovations and business models that exist today are targeted at existing consumers. Those who can already afford products on the market. When analysis and consumer reports use terms like rising middle class, increasing disposable income, and demographic dividend, oftentimes they are referring to existing consumption patterns. Non-consumption is different. It's the inability of a would-be consumer to purchase and use, consume a product or service. From inception, Mo Ibrahim Seltel. Focused its business model on non-consumption of mobile phones in Africa, as opposed to targeting the more affluent population. Two, an enabling technology. An enabling technology is one that provides improving levels of performance at progressively lower cost. A technology is any process within an organization that converts inputs of lower value into outputs of greater value. Enabling technologies such as the internet, smartphones, the Toyota production system, or even an efficient distribution and logistics operation, can provide a competitive edge to companies as they build new markets. Celtel leveraged the rapidly changing wireless cellular technology network in order to provide a service to many that had historically relied on wired connections. Three, a new value network. A value network is what defines a company's cost structure. For example, before a product goes from farm to grocery store, it must first be harvested, processed, stored, transported, packaged, marketed, and so on.
This network of activities constitutes what's called the product's value network, with each adding a little bit of cost to the price of the final product. Because most businesses are targeted at existing consumers, their cost structures prevent them from targeting non-consumers. Creating a new value network enables companies to redefine their cost structure so that their solutions can be afforded by non-consumers and profitable at the same time. One of the ways Celtel did this was by changing how people purchased cell phone minutes. The company not only developed scratch cards, cards that enabled people to purchase minutes of talk time, but it also leveraged the informal retail network all across the continent. This helped Celtel redefine its cost structure. Four, an emergent strategy. When creating a new market, innovators typically use an emergent or flexible strategy, because they are going after markets that are not yet defined, and so must learn much from their soon-to-be customers. Deliberate or fixed strategies are typically used when companies know the needs of the market. Managers and entrepreneurs. Must be willing to learn and modify their intended strategies based on the feedback they get from the new customers they are trying to serve, as Celtel did in different countries. Five, executive support. Businesses that attempt to create a new market are often unpopular because not only do they target a market that technically does not yet exist, but also they often require more resources than sustaining and efficiency innovations. This is why no banks lent to Mo Ibrahim at the onset. So, in order to survive in existing organizations, market-creating innovations require support from the CEO or someone high up in the executive team. The Model T effect. Perhaps the clearest example of the potential power of market-creating innovations can be found in the innovation of the Model T. About a century ago, cars in America were toys and status symbols for the rich. Fewer than 10,000 cars were registered in America in 1900, and these were custom-made cars that were bought as much for status as for their practical utility. Not unlike the market for private jets today, there were few paved roads on which cars could be driven, few gas stations where they could be refueled, and few Americans rich enough to afford a car. Henry Ford would change all that. In fact, so many Americans purchased cars. Annual production went from 20,000 in 1909 to more than 2 million by 1922. That the automobile boom led to a major cultural revolution in the country. Americans changed where and how they lived, worked, and played. Schools and suburbs began to develop. The transportation of agricultural products became more efficient. And new businesses and industries, tourism, hotels, fast food, auto repair shops, auto insurance, gas stations, and so on, emerged. Many other industries were created to provide supplies directly to automakers, such as steel, oil, paint, lumber, cement, glass, and rubber. Schools began to offer programs that taught people how to make and service cars, and our public institutions began to respond. By building new roads and creating new laws that made driving safer for America, the car and the market Ford helped create, however, came first. 
In addition to the Model T creating a new market that generated significant employment and tax revenue, the innovation had major downstream effects on the American economy. As more people continued to purchase Model T cars, competitors arose, making the industry even more efficient, vibrant, and mainstream. Americans loved their cars, and the government had to keep responding by building more roads. All this continued the virtuous cycle that Ford started. From 1909 to 1927, the company built 15 million Model T cars. Cars led to more roads, which led to more suburbs, which led to more jobs, which, research tells us, led to less crime. Ford's innovation, however, was not simply a car. It was an entire business model born out of his vision to create an entirely new market for the automobile. As was true for the Model T, market-creating innovations are less about the actual product being sold and more about the value network and business model an innovator develops. For Ford to sell his car to millions of Americans, he not only had to make a product that was simple to drive and affordable to purchase, but he also had to invest in many other things, such as gas and service stations, railroads to help him transport his product, and an aggressive advertising campaign targeted at average Americans who had never owned a car. But as successful as the Model T and the new market it created were, Ford was slow to invest in sustaining innovations. To illustrate the importance of sustaining innovations, consider the following. In 1921, Ford Motor Company commanded a dominant 60% of the auto market in the United States. But the company's failure to invest in sustaining innovations caused it to lose its position. And by 1936, Ford Motor Company was number three in the market. General Motors, which gave customers such things as new models every year, the ability to purchase cars on credit, and different colors, became number one in the market with 43% share, while Chrysler leapt to the number two spot with 25% share. As we described earlier, sustaining and efficiency innovations are important to keep companies and economies vibrant, but market-creating innovations provide the platform upon which future growth is created. The Force of Market-Creating Innovations While each type of innovation has a role to play in an economy, because each creates or keeps markets vibrant, market-creating innovations are especially powerful because they often target large swaths of the population with a solution that helps them make progress with a struggle. And since each market is a function of both the value of the product being sold and the quantity of that product, a market that targets non-consumption has the potential to create significant gains for investors, for innovators, and for society. Think of it like this. Every successful new market that is created, regardless of the product or service being sold, has three distinct outcomes. Profits, jobs, and the most difficult to track, but perhaps most powerful of the three, cultural change. Together, these create a solid foundation for future growth. For a market to be created and then sustained, it must create profits or at least have the prospect of profit generation in the future. Profits provide the fuel for further growth. Jobs, the second output of markets, 
are created in order for the market to deliver on its promise of making, distributing, selling, improving, and providing solutions to its new customers. I have always felt that the creation of a job is far more important for a society than the simple calculation of economic value. Jobs give people dignity and build self-esteem. Jobs enable people to provide for themselves and their families. Research has repeatedly told us that people who are employed have less time or inclination to engage in crime. The third and perhaps most important output of a market is the cultural change the new market triggers and reinforces. In addition to democratizing products and services so that many more people in society have access, market-creating innovations also democratize the benefits of successful new markets that are created. These benefits aren't limited to just jobs, but also ownership opportunities that are often offered to investors and employees. When many people in a region understand that they can begin to solve many of their problems, fend for themselves and their families, and gain status and dignity in society in a productive manner, that is, by participating in the new market as investors, producers, or consumers, they are more likely to change the way they think about their society. This is one of the ways new markets begin to change a society's culture, which can make all the difference for a country looking to prosper. When All is Said and Done The late Nobel laureate Milton Friedman once stated, The great virtue of the free market, of the private market, is that it enables people to cooperate together economically. We have found markets to be a powerful force that has the ability to pull into societies many of the components that make societies safer, more secure, and more prosperous. This is why understanding the critical role different types of innovations play is vital to economic development. By investing in market-creating innovations, investors and entrepreneurs inadvertently engage in nation-building. These innovations create a viable market that serves non-consumption, typically the majority of people in a poor economy, thereby creating jobs and profits that can fund other important elements of a developed society, which, in a nice, virtuous circle, are pulled in by the innovation for it to succeed. While market-creating innovations are about developing simpler and more affordable products so that many more people than before can afford them, they also begin to lay the foundations necessary to build an economy. Once these new markets are created, the economy becomes more resilient as it generates more income to fund schools, roads, hospitals, and even better governance, a process we will explore later in this book. Obviously, not all market-creating innovations will have the same impact that Ford's Model T had, but our research shows that even small innovations can begin to transform countries economically and culturally. Chapter 3 In the Struggle Lies Opportunity The real voyage of discovery consists not in seeking new landscapes, but in having new eyes. Marcel Proust The Idea in Brief you may be thinking that it's one thing to say market-creating innovations are important to creating prosperity, 
But how in the world do you spot these opportunities, much less go after them? If it were so easy, wouldn't everyone be doing this already? The problem is, it is very difficult to see what you're not looking for. Many of our economic forecasts don't necessarily help. They typically focus on what we call the consumption economy, the part of the economy that is most visible through conventional metrics. But they do not factor in what's less obvious and perhaps the richest vein to mine for growth, the non-consumption economy. To see opportunity in non-consumption, you have to change what you're looking for. In his first job, working in the insurance industry in London, Richard Leftley was fascinated and puzzled by two tables in the annual statistical analysis published by Swiss Re, the leading global reinsurer. The first one was the number and location of people who died as a result of natural disasters. The second was the total cost of insurance payouts in those areas. There was a total mismatch between the two lists, Leftley recalls now. The human toll was enormous in places like Bangladesh, Pakistan, and India. But those countries were never even on the total payouts rankings. It made no sense, Leftley thought, that the people who need insurance most in the world are least likely to have it. A few years later, using his two-week vacation to do volunteer work in Zambia, Leftley saw an opportunity to change that. He was placed in the home of a widow and her child in a poor village as part of his volunteer experience. Leftley was unprepared for just how painful her daily life was. She lived hand-to-mouth at best. But Leftley learned during that stay that her life had not always been so bleak. She had previously lived in Lusaka, the capital of Zambia, working as a schoolteacher while her husband made his living as a security guard. They had risen above their poor childhood economic circumstances and were living a life of relative comfort with a decent home and a motorcycle to get around. In what Leftley calls the chutes and ladders of life, her husband contracted HIV at the height of the epidemic in Zambia, and the family's downward spiral began. Not only was he too ill to work, but they spent all of their savings on medicine, both legitimate and hocus-pocus that offered false hope, and eventually on his funeral. Broken, she and her child returned to the village to start again. Leftley was profoundly moved by the widow's story and returned to London, determined to find a way to use his professional expertise to help people in poor economies who most needed it. When he started telling his insurance colleagues his idea for a new type of business, much like Mo Ibrahim a decade before, he was greeted with guffaws. They laughed at me, he recalls now. I was talking about going to Zambia and selling insurance to people who had HIV. People thought I had lost my marbles. They're not laughing now. As of this writing, MicroInsure, the company that Leftley went on to found, has registered more than 56 million people for insurance in emerging economies, 18 million in 2017 alone, paying out $30 million in claims by finding enormous opportunity in non-consumption and radically innovating the insurance business model to make that possible. The company, which has been awarded the Financial Times IFC Transformational Business Award four times in recent years, is already profitable in 80% of the markets it has entered. More than 85% of MicroInsure's customers 
had never purchased an insurance product until MicroInsure came to the scene. This is what sets market-creating innovators apart, the ability to identify opportunities where there seem to be no customers. It's difficult to run a ruler over things you can't see, Leftley says now. But Leftley and his team had a revelation that completely changed how they approached their innovation. We realized we weren't competing with giant insurance companies. We were competing with apathy. Apathy, it turns out, is a fierce competitor. But a well-thought-out innovation that responds to a struggle that potential consumers are facing can eventually win out. Therein lies some of the greatest potential to create markets that will lead to prosperity, first for the entrepreneur and then, over time, for the region. A Tale of Two Economies I have often wondered how we can better describe economies in a way that points to their potential for growth and development. To many of us, the economy is simply an abstract hodgepodge of money and businesses, products and advertisements, laws and regulations, and buyers and sellers that interact with one another in some fashion. We typically categorize countries and their economies as monolithic entities. As such, many of the projections and analyses, such as GDP growth, per capita income growth, and even sector-specific statistics, offer a high-level view of what's going on in the economy as a whole. Although these sorts of analyses are informative and useful, they may not always tell the whole story. From an innovative point of view, we see the world a bit differently. Countries are made up of consumers, the consumption economy, and non-consumers, the non-consumption economy, a distinction that helps identify fertile territory for market-creating innovations. Seeing an economy this way helps cut through the noise of GDP growth and a host of other metrics that we tend to use to determine an economy's health and potential. The consumption economy is composed of customers who have the income, time, and expertise to purchase and use existing products or services in the market. It is the part of the economy that economists, forecasters, and marketing managers often use to predict the growth of a product or a region. The most common type of innovations, sustaining innovations, are targeted at the consumption economy because it's relatively easy to see the potential for growth. When you already know who your customers are, you can find ways to make your products or services better for them so they'll spend more with you. Not surprisingly, capital, being risk-averse by its very nature, tends to chase sustaining innovations in hopes of a predictable return on investment, ROI, because it can more easily see and understand the potential using existing financial tools and theories. To appreciate the degree to which capital chases the consumption economy, consider the Global Foreign Direct Investment, FDI, flows. In 2016, approximately $1.1 trillion of the total $1.5 trillion of global FDI flowed to the richest countries in the world, that is, the 35 member countries in the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, OECD. In other words, more than 73% of global FDI went to just 35 of the 196 countries in the world. Or consider the billions of dollars of investments that flowed to the mobile telecommunications industry in Africa after Mo Ibrahim created a market 
and turned millions of non-consumers into consumers. As we've noted, the potential of market-creating innovations is significant relative to even the most robust efficiency or sustaining innovations. But innovating for a market that does not yet exist can feel risky. Think about the conventional art of product development, which focuses on segmentation, identifying groups of customers that are similar enough that the same product or service will appeal to all of them. Since investments are necessary to develop and market products, investment decisions are typically made based on similar segmentation decisions. Questions like, how much disposable income do people in country A have, or what is the average expenditure on entertainment in country B, and is that number growing or shrinking, typically drive investment decisions. Marketers, research analysts, and investors often segment markets by product type, by price point, or by the demographics and psychographics of the individuals or companies who are their customers. This is about focusing on the consumption economy, the opportunity we can most easily see and segment. But this method leaves billions of people out of consideration because they are deemed too poor, too uneducated, or too uninteresting to develop products for. History has shown us time and again that that way of thinking is very limiting. Consider, for example, how AT&T missed the chance to lead a mobile phone revolution. Just a few decades ago, AT&T asked a prominent consulting firm to estimate how many cell phones there would be in the world at the turn of this century. The consulting firm estimated just under one million. And so AT&T did not invest since the market would not be big enough to warrant its investment. All the existing data AT&T had access to pointed to low opportunity. Cell phones at the time were heavy, bulky, and expensive. Most people could not afford them. Not investing made sense, at least on paper. Fast forward to the present day, and it's impossible to imagine any place in the world without them. By the year 2001, there were almost 1 billion cell phones in the world. Today, there are more than 7.5 billion cell phone subscriptions globally. Just try making eye contact with your fellow passengers on a New York or New Delhi subway. It's impossible. You'll find people of all ages and demographic backgrounds looking down, transfixed by something on their phones. Non-consumption offers a powerful clue that there is enormous potential for innovation. But spotting non-consumption requires putting on a new set of lenses to see what others might be missing. Identifying the Barriers How do you go about identifying high-potential pockets of non-consumption? In their book, The Innovator's Guide to Growth, Putting Disruptive Innovation to Work, my colleague Scott Anthony and his co-authors dedicate a whole chapter to how to identify non-consumption. There are primarily four barriers or constraints that prevent people from consuming a solution that will help them make progress. They are skill, wealth, access, and time. Sometimes, solutions on the market exhibit similar constraints that prevent would-be consumers from consuming those particular solutions. Let us explore each briefly. Skill. Often, non-consumers do not have the skills necessary to consume existing solutions on the market, even though they would benefit from doing so. For example, 50 years ago, 
Computers required immense skill to operate, and those who used them, mostly technicians at large universities and big corporations, had to be able to operate a very large and complex machine. This created an extra barrier to consumption, in addition to the price tag. Wealth. Wealth is usually the most easily identifiable constraint. This is when non-consumers cannot economically afford existing solutions on the market that would help them make progress if they exist. For example, most Americans could not afford a personal computer until Apple, IBM, Microsoft, and Intel, innovating over time, made access to computing more affordable for the average non-consumer. Today, most of us have computers in our pockets. Access. Access is when non-consumers would benefit from a particular solution, but existing solutions are not within reach in their particular location or context. Remember the photocopying centers in many large organizations? Those big and complicated-to-use machines were in centralized locations, and if you were not connected to one of them, you were not able to print. But Canon and Ricoh developed smaller, simpler, and more affordable printers that we now have in our homes and offices. Their innovation removed the access barrier. Today, we can print thousands of pages from our mobile phones connected to wireless printers in our homes. Time, time-related constraints are when non-consumers would benefit from using a solution, but the time required is prohibitive. In my 65 years of life, I have yet to meet a person who just loves waiting or wasting time. Clinica Stella Sucar. A Mexican chain of clinics that provides an integrated solution for the treatment of diabetes, which we will discuss in detail in Chapter Seven, developed its solution with this barrier in mind. Many existing solutions to treating diabetes in Mexico required patients to go to different hospitals or clinics and visit with different specialists. This required a significant amount of time just traveling. Clinica Stella Sucar's solution is different. Patients visit one clinic. Where they see several different specialists in a timely manner, because the more patients the clinic sees, the more revenue it generates. There is an incentive for the clinic to be efficient with its treatment. The struggle is real. Identifying the barriers that lead to non-consumption is a vital clue, but it's not the only thing innovators should be looking for. People are non-consumers because they're struggling to accomplish something. But none of the available solutions is a good option for them. We believe that innovation is too often hit or miss because it relies on existing data about the consumption economy, using information about what customers have done in the past to predict what they'll do in the future. But that data is missing something fundamental. It doesn't explain why people make the choices they do, and it doesn't necessarily predict what they will do in the future. And it doesn't capture why someone has chosen to not purchase a product or service at all, which is where the non-consumption economy exists. Instead, this can be explained by the theory of jobs to be done, which we believe explains why people make the purchasing choices that they do. Many marketers focus on identifying demographics or putting prospective customers into segments. But we believe this misses what fundamentally causes each of us to make a choice to buy a product or service. There's something else going on that demographics can't explain. Everyday jobs arise in my life 
that I need to get done. Some are little jobs, some are big ones. Some jobs surface unpredictably. Some are an everyday affair. When we realize we have a job to do, we reach out and pull something into our lives to help us get the job done. When we buy a product, we essentially hire something to help us solve that job. If the product we hire does the job well, when we are confronted with the same job again, we hire that same product. And if the product does a crummy job, we fire it and look around for something else we might hire to solve the problem. Let me illustrate what I mean. I might choose to buy the New York Times newspaper on my way to work one morning. I am 65 years old, I'm 6 feet 8 inches tall, and my shoe size is 16. My wife and I have sent all our children off to college. I drive an SUV to work. I have a lot of characteristics and attributes, but none of them has caused me to go out and buy the New York Times. My reasons for buying the paper are much more specific. I might buy it because I need something to read on a plane and I don't want to be forced to chat with the Gabby passenger beside me. I might be buying it because I'm a basketball fan and I want to look in the sports section and tease one of my sons about his favorite team's chances of making it to the playoffs. Marketers who collect demographic or psychographic information about me and look for correlations with other buyer segments are not going to capture those reasons. They won't have understood the job I was hiring the newspaper to do that day. Or if I don't purchase a newspaper on a given day because I won't have time to read it, there will be no data about my choice at all. Until you understand the job your customers are hiring your product or service to do in all its rich complexity and nuance, you can never be certain that your innovations will be successful. Successful market-creating innovations emerge from unfulfilled jobs to be done. They solve problems that formerly had only inadequate solutions or no solution at all. Celtel's Mo Ibrahim knew that someone who wanted to talk to his mother in a village far away would have to travel for days to make contact. For most people, that was an inadequate solution. Microinsurer's Richard Leftley knew that people who desperately wanted to protect their families from unforeseen difficulties had few options. Neither one of those opportunities would have been apparent through the lens of the consumption economy. People would rather go without any product, stay as non-consumers, than hire a product or service that solves their job in an unsatisfactory way. This is what happened when Leftley realized that his insurance product was not competing with other insurance products on the market, it was competing with apathy. His product was actually competing with nothing. Once you understand the real job people are looking to get done, and in the case of non-consumption, that people are choosing to go without rather than solve that job with existing options, the market suddenly seems full of potential. Non-consumption is simply a clue that there is enormous potential to solve a struggle with innovation. No one wakes up in the morning and wants to buy insurance. Innovators need to walk in the shoes of their prospective customers to create a product that is so much better than the existing alternatives that people hire it, even when the competition is nothing. Once innovators understand the job to be done well enough, they will be able to create a solution that will cause non-consumers 
to fire apathy, or whatever workaround they have created, and hire their solution instead. That might seem easy on the surface. Isn't something better than nothing? But a customer's decision-making process about what to fire and hire for their job is complicated. There are always two opposing forces battling for dominance within us in that moment of choice, and they both play a significant role in our decisions to hire something. The forces compelling change to a new solution. First of all, the push of the situation, the frustration or problem that a customer is trying to solve, has to be substantial enough to cause them to want to take action. A problem that is simply nagging or annoying might not be enough to trigger someone to do something differently. Secondly, the pull of an enticing new product or service to solve that problem has to be pretty strong too. The new solution to their job to be done has to help customers make progress that will make their lives better. The forces opposing change. There are two unseen yet incredibly powerful forces at play at the same time that many innovators often ignore: the forces holding a customer back. First, habits of the present weigh heavily on consumers. I'm used to doing it this way or living with the problem. I don't love it. But at least I'm comfortable with how I deal with it now. This is where non-consumers tend to live, stuck in the habits of the present. The thought of switching to a new solution is almost overwhelming. Sticking with the devil they know, in this case, simply living with their struggle, is bearable. I refused to upgrade my mobile phone for years, in spite of all the whiz-bang things my assistant assured me the new phone could do, because I was comfortable with the one I had. This is largely because, as Nobel Prize winner Daniel Kahneman has shown, the principal allure of the old is that it requires no deliberation and has some intuitive plausibility as a solution already. Loss aversion, people's tendency to want to avoid loss, is twice as powerful psychologically as the allure of gains, as first demonstrated by Kahneman and Amos Tversky. On top of that. Anxieties that come into play with hiring a new solution are powerful: anxiety about the cost, anxiety of learning something new, and anxiety of the unknown can be overwhelming. I'm guessing you probably have at least one old mobile phone gathering dust in a junk drawer or closet somewhere in your home. You're not alone. Many consumers hang on to their old mobile phones, even when they might get some trade-in value toward a new one. Why? Anxiety about the new solution. What if the new one fails at some point? What if I find myself in some kind of unanticipated situation where I need a backup phone? What if? Innovators all too often focus exclusively on the forces pushing for change, making sure that the new solution for resolving a customer's struggle is sufficiently alluring to cause them to switch, but ignore the powerful forces blocking that change. Micro Insurers Leftly found this out the hard way. It took Leftly and his team a few tries to get their offering right. Initially, Micro Insurer focused on trying to draw people in simply by offering insurance. Micro Insurer doesn't fund the insurance it sells, but rather works as a middleman between the mobile phone companies and mainstream insurers. The company makes money by getting a small cut from new and existing mobile phone subscribers. 
who spend up to a certain amount of money purchasing cell phone minutes monthly. In addition, when insurance companies want access to new customers, they sometimes contract out consulting and product development services to microinsure. This means the burden is on microinsure to understand the prospective customers and find a way to appeal to them. At the outset, microinsure created programs that allowed mobile phone companies to offer free insurance to customers who spent a bit more topping up their prepaid mobile minutes. All a customer needed to do to sign up for insurance was provide his or her name, age, and next of kin. Just three questions stood between a potential customer and free insurance, free as a bonus for buying more mobile minutes. It should have been a slam dunk, but it was not. Even after spending lots of money on advertising for a free product, the company would hope to make its money upselling once it had registered customers, the company had only recruited 10,000 customers in more than a year, a tiny dent in the market. Even though MicroInsure tried to make it simple to sign up for insurance, the product itself made little sense in the circumstances in which many customers found themselves. It wasn't solving their job to be done. It was essentially traditional insurance, just priced for an emerging market economy. I had to print brochures that said things like, skydiving and water polo are excluded, leftly recalls of the insurer's requirement that he specifically exclude participating in expensive sports that the non-consumers they were targeting would never even contemplate. It was mad. Seeing through the lens of what job these non-consumers were really trying to do caused Leftly and his team to rethink not only what they were selling, but how. No one wakes up in the morning and wants to buy insurance, Leftly realized, but they do wake up worrying about what could possibly go wrong that day that could ruin their lives. Risk of getting sick that day and not being able to work. Risk of their market stall burning down. Risk of being robbed. Risk of a flood wiping out all their supplies. Risk of the cruelties of fate swiping them off the board altogether. The job to be done was not sell me insurance. The job was something like help me continue to earn a living for my family in my particular circumstances without worrying about things outside of my control. Their strategy at this stage had to be emergent, not deliberate. They had to learn how to first create the market before scaling their solution. To respond to what they were learning, MicroInsure had to change virtually everything about the traditional insurance model. Even asking three simple questions to get customers to sign up was too much. We could track where people gave up in the process. Leftly recalls, those three questions caused 80% of the people to not complete the process. In many lower-income countries, questions such as age and next of kin are not simple. People don't often know or care so much about their age, and choosing a next of kin in a complex family structure is difficult. So MicroInsure had to radically innovate its business model to address the forces opposing change in prospective customers' minds. What would happen if they didn't ask customers anything? At all. MicroInsure and its partner insurers would only have one piece of information about a customer, his or her mobile phone number. And with that one piece of information, insurance companies would agree to provide insurance and make payments directly to that phone number without paperwork, questions, or proof of anything. 
This was very freaky for insurance companies, Leftley recalls. Not knowing a customer's age in an industry built on data, forecasting, and predictable actuarial tables was a truly radical thought. But with that innovation, buying insurance became as simple as signing up for a ringtone. Now, free insurance became a powerful marketing tool. Once a customer was educated about the concept of insurance, it was easier to upsell and cross-market other insurance products. We had cracked the code, Leftley says, so much so that MicroInsure signed up one million customers on the first day they offered a new life insurance product in India, one that had no age limit and no exclusions and only required a mobile phone number. The company wasn't prepared for just how successfully they had cracked it. In the next three months, another 19 million customers followed suit. We hadn't built systems that could deal with that kind of volume, Leftley recounts. We were plugging in hard drives and thumb drives and were right on the edge of what was physically possible. That's not to say that MicroInsure's success came easily. Creating markets in emerging economies is difficult. MicroInsure actually began as a not-for-profit organization before Leftley and his team realized that they couldn't possibly keep up with the growth relying on donated funds and grants in the glacial process by which they are often bestowed. MicroInsure came close to folding several times while they waited for grants to be approved. By the time MicroInsure was signing up millions of customers every week, it was clear that relying on funders was not a strategy for long-term growth and sustainability. We'd think about approaching a major foundation, for example, and going through that whole process. If we were lucky, six months later we'd get a check. But in six months, we might be out of business. We couldn't wait that long. With a clear market and untold potential opportunity, Leftley and his team were eventually able to attract a consortium of backers, including AXA Insurance Company, Sonlam, Omidyar, IFC, and Telenor, and converted to a for-profit venture. The company could now afford to experiment and create new products and services in markets that other insurance companies simply couldn't see. In each location, MicroInsure would hire and set up a local team to run operations on the ground, creating a battery of new local jobs. To be clear, it's not that existing companies aren't looking for opportunities to grow. They are, but unfortunately, they are often blinded by their existing business models and the market research tools they use. This causes them not to see opportunity in the struggle of millions of people. The vastness of the non-consumption economy in many regions in our world is simply an indication that, while major struggles exist for hundreds of millions of people, an entrepreneur has yet to build a viable business model to address these particular struggles. The interesting thing about developing a business model that targets this struggle is that, once done successfully, all of a sudden, the opportunity looks obvious. Consider the case of appliance maker Galantz. Just because you can't see it doesn't mean it's not there. Liang Chaoxian, founder of Galantz, built what has become one of the world's largest home appliance companies. Barely a blip on anyone's radar 25 years ago, today, roughly half the microwave ovens sold globally are made by Galantz. That's a lot of microwave ovens. But Chao Xi'an didn't build that empire by focusing primarily on exploiting China's low wages 
to create exports for the world. He focused first on the struggle he saw in China. This was an opportunity his competitors initially couldn't see. In 1992, for example, only 200,000 microwave ovens were sold in China, a majority of which were sold in cities. The average price of a microwave oven was around 3,000 won, approximately $500 at the time, well beyond the reach of the average Chinese citizen. Most Chinese people saw the microwave oven as a luxury they didn't need, and so did many microwave manufacturers. Who saw the average Chinese non-consumer as too poor to even consider purchasing a microwave oven? The largest producers of microwave ovens for the local Chinese market had annual sales of around 120,000 units. But Galance's founder saw something else. He saw people who lived in tiny apartment buildings with either no stoves or cumbersome ones. Many used hot plates, which often heated up their small and cramped apartments. He saw a growing number of Chinese people who were now more than ever pressed for time. He also saw that the last thing anyone living in a small apartment who does not own an air conditioner and is pressed for time wants to do is cook, thereby emitting more heat into the room. Chao Xian saw this struggle as a huge market-creating opportunity. Galance chose to focus on the microwave oven market in China for precisely the same reasons. Many recognized global brands chose to ignore it. To them, the existing demand was small. Microwave ovens were expensive, and the average Chinese consumer could not afford one. So Galance developed a business model that focused on creating a market in China. Even though Galance took advantage of lower labor costs in China, as did many other brands and manufacturers, it would be incorrect to suggest that Galance was just a low-cost manufacturer of microwave ovens. Galance started from scratch with the average Chinese customer in mind. In order to successfully target the average Chinese customer, company executives at Galance had to think differently than other microwave manufacturers in China. For example, in the mid-1990s, the capacity utilization rate for most microwave manufacturers in China was around 40 percent, but Galance ran its plants 24/7 in order to maximize its asset utilization. While other manufacturers advertised their products on TV, Galance opted for newspapers, where it introduced knowledge marketing. With knowledge marketing, companies provided consumers with information about how to use their products and include details about new models. This strategy drastically reduced Galance's advertising and marketing costs, as companies with similar sales volumes were spending almost ten times as much as Galance on advertising. An article in China Daily, a popular English-language Chinese newspaper, credits Galance with educating many first-time consumers in China on how to use microwave ovens. In 1995, the company Galance popularized the knowledge of the use of microwave ovens nationwide. It started running special features such as a guide to microwave oven usage, a talk on microwave ovens by an expert, and recipes for microwave oven dishes. In more than 150 newspapers, it spent nearly 1 million won, 120,481 dollars, in publishing books like How to Choose a Good Microwave Oven. The article stated, "These efforts not only educated the Chinese population about microwaves, but also created brand awareness for Galance. Galance also developed new capabilities, 
that other contract manufacturers focused primarily on low-wage exports did not need to develop. Where the company needed new engineers, salespeople, and marketing experts, it recruited them. Where it needed new distribution channels, it developed them. Where it needed new offices, factories, or showrooms, it built them. In order to serve the Chinese market, Galance had to create many local jobs. Just two years after Galance began production, the company had a national sales network of almost 5,000 stores. Today, Galance has the world's largest microwave research and development center. In addition, the company actively seeks partnerships with research institutions and R&D centers in several countries, including the United States, Japan, and South Korea. Galance now has distribution centers in nearly 200 countries and regions around the world. If Galance had focused exclusively on exporting low-cost microwave ovens, it would not have had to make many of these investments. With Galance, we can begin to see the development impact of targeting non-consumption. For instance, in 1993, Galance had 20 employees. By 2003, it had grown to more than 10,000. From a production standpoint, Galance was producing approximately 400 units per day on a single line in 1993. By 2003, Galance was running 24 lines, producing 50,000 units a day. About a decade later, Galance was producing approximately 100,000 microwave ovens a day. Galance had been so successful that the company posted over 4.5 billion dollars in revenues. And employed more than 40,000 people in 2013. The company now enjoys greater than 40% market share in the global microwave market, and its founder Liang Chaoxian is sitting comfortably on Forbes's list of the world's richest people, worth a whopping 1.01 billion dollars. Chaoxian's wealth and Galance's success, however, were built on a foundation of market-creating innovations in China for China. After successfully targeting non-consumption in China, Galance was well positioned to go after global markets. Non-consumption everywhere. Armed with the understanding that there is a vast opportunity in creating businesses that target non-consumption, it is possible to develop market-creating innovations in the same way these entrepreneurs below have done. As a consequence. Many of the innovators who built companies that address the struggles of millions in our world will begin to transform their local economies in the process. Seeing what cannot be seen. Conventional wisdom suggests that we look for growth and prosperity in the consumption economy. That is certainly where a majority of capital spends its time, chasing new and exciting growth opportunities. Understandably, these opportunities are easier to assess with the market research tools companies have come to rely on. But focusing on non-consumption provides what we believe to be the best opportunity to ignite new growth engines for companies. In turn, these new growth engines help communities provide jobs and income, both of which ultimately help people make progress in their lives. As counterintuitive as it may seem. It is possible to develop market-creating innovations amid the non-consumption that exists in many poor countries. It is often through the arduous work of innovators 
who can see the opportunities in non-consumption, spot a struggle, and conceive of a future that is different from the past, that the seeds of prosperity get planted. That's exactly what Leftley and his team continue to do at MicroInsure. After spending time in some poor neighborhoods in Dhaka, Bangladesh's capital city, Leftley saw the opportunity for another product that might seem inconceivable to others. Very basic hospitalization insurance. Any customer who signs up for free for this insurance gets $50 if they spend two or more nights in a hospital. No matter their age or underlying health condition, a $50 payment will be made to a mobile phone number as soon as the claim is filed. No questions asked. The idea for the product came after a heartbreaking conversation Leftley had with a mother who had lost her child to illness. She had brought her sick child to the local hospital, but without money to pay for private medical care, her child just waited for two days without seeing a single medical professional. When she realized that her child was not going to be seen at that hospital, she turned up at the private clinic down the road to see if they would treat her child. Yes, they would, if the woman would pay them five dollars, half up front. Desperate, the woman raced home, leaving her child alone in the hospital so she could sell all her possessions to raise the money. When she returned to the hospital the next day, her child had died. She was inconsolable, broken, and I felt it too, Leftley recalls. I came away from that conversation with my team saying we have to fix this. We have to come up with a product that addresses this market failure. Her struggle was beyond description, but not beyond repair. According to Leftley, 24% of people who enter a hospital in India for any reason leave the hospital below the poverty line, the toll of both lost wages and hospital bills. Through trial and error, the initial product offering was too clunky and relied on hospitals to submit paperwork and claims, MicroInsure got to the simple product it has now. It didn't need to be cash in advance of hospitalization. MicroInsure learned that even patients required to find cash up front, as this woman was, could borrow and raise enough money knowing they could repay any loans within a couple of days. To end up with a product that really works, you have no idea what that does to you, Leftley says now. He's wished many, many times that he could tell the woman how meeting her changed the fate of many other people in her heartbreaking situation. I've spent years trying to find that family again and tell that mother that her experience caused us to come up with a product that millions of people have and has saved so many lives. I'd love to have a chance to do that. We do not have all the answers to the struggles in our world, but we do know that one rarely finds what one is not looking for. We are hopeful that with the lenses of searching for non-consumption opportunities through the struggle people encounter on a daily basis, and by creating better solutions for the job to be done, we can begin to chip away at them and, in turn, begin to create the markets that will help struggling communities march toward prosperity. Chapter 4 Pull versus Push A Tale of Two Strategies I run a food company, but I know more about electricity generation than food. 
Deepak Singhal, CEO, Tolaram Africa. The idea in brief. Every year, we spend billions of dollars in an attempt to help low- and middle-income countries develop. These funds are primarily used to push resources into poor countries in order to help them begin their march toward prosperity. But even after pushing trillions of dollars worth of resources over the past 70 years, too many countries are still poor, with some even poorer today. Why is development so hard to attain and then sustain? We believe that many of these attempts are missing a critical component for development, innovation. Developments and prosperity take root when we develop innovations that pull in necessary resources a society requires. Once a new innovation that is profitable to the stakeholders in the economy, including investors, entrepreneurs, customers, and the government, is introduced, the stakeholders are often incentivized to help maintain the resources the innovation has pulled in, such as infrastructures, education, and even policies. Poll strategies ensure a ready market is waiting. This, we believe, is essential for long-term and sustainable prosperity. One of the most popular movies in India in 2017 was not a high-budget Hollywood blockbuster or a shiny Bollywood extravaganza. It was a film called Toilet, a Love Story, which chronicled the trials and tribulations of a young bride who is devastated to learn that her new groom's family does not have a toilet. The village divides into those who understand her perspective and those who don't, and much chaos and laughter ensue. Eventually, the husband builds his beloved a toilet, and they live happily ever after. Toilet, a love story, may sound like an unlikely sleeper hit, but the plot clearly hit a nerve for its intended audience in India, where more than half of households don't have access to a toilet. In reality, the lack of toilets is no laughing matter. One in ten deaths in India can be attributed to poor sanitation, according to the World Bank. Children pick up chronic infections from contaminated groundwater, and diarrhea is the leading killer of Indian children, causing more than 300,000 deaths annually. Millions more are impaired by stunted growth as a result of contaminated water. Many people wait until dark to use public spaces for defecation, a circumstance that has created its own set of problems, including reports of rape and violence against women. The quest for better sanitation is profoundly important for the country, so much so that Mahatma Gandhi once declared sanitation to be sacred and more important than political freedom. The solution, of course, seems obvious. Build more toilets. So obvious, agrees India's current Prime Minister, Narendra Modi, that he has declared building toilets a priority over temples as part of his Clean India mission. To that end, the Indian government built more than 10 million toilets in 2014 and 2015, with plans to add an additional 60 million toilets by 2019. How can this not be a good thing in the context of India's serious sanitation problem? Well. It turns out that building toilets is not enough. By mid-2015, the government found that a majority of the toilets were not being used. Even as we accelerate toilet construction now, much more needs to be done to persuade people to use them, noted Chowdhury Birender Singh, 
India's Minister for Rural Development, Sanitation, and Drinking Water. Persuading has taken a number of forms. In some rural parts of India, teams of government employees and volunteer motivators roam villages publicly shaming people who opt to relieve themselves out in the open rather than use a newly installed public or private toilet. In some villages, little children have been taught to chase people who appear to be headed for a field to relieve themselves and blow whistles at them. The government itself has resorted to financial incentives to help motivate villages to support the use of toilets. For long, we assume that if the toilets are built, people will automatically use it, Singh observed. But we have to diligently monitor the use over a period of time and reward them with cash incentives to the village councils at every stage. Only then will it become a daily habit. Motivators and children with whistles following, goading, and shaming people? A cash incentive to use a free toilet? Something is wrong here. No matter how well intended the efforts, pushing a solution like this, without understanding the underlying causes of why people make particular decisions, can lead to such painful distortions. In some of the rural villages where people have been shamed into compliance, drought conditions actually make it virtually impossible to keep toilets clean. The scarce water is essential for drinking and bathing. It would be a luxury to use it to clean a toilet. In other locations, toilets have been so hastily installed that they are not actually connected to anything, quickly becoming so fly-ridden and smelly that no one will use them. After years of working with and studying many communities that struggle with this problem, Kamal Carr, a development consultant, pioneered the community-led total sanitation CLTS approach. On the CLTS website, they note, merely providing toilets does not guarantee their use, nor result in improved sanitation and hygiene. Earlier approaches to sanitation prescribed high initial standards and offered subsidies as an incentive, but this often led to uneven adoption, problems with long-term sustainability, and only partial use. It also created a culture of dependence on subsidies. The CLTS approach does not believe the solution to a sanitation problem is simply the provision of the hardware, and neither do we. But this is easier said than done. Here's why. Poverty is painful and almost always shows itself as a lack of resources, such as food, sanitation, safe water, education, health care, and public services in poor communities. As such, it is reasonable to assume that poverty is primarily a resource problem. Based on that assumption, over the past several decades, we have been executing an expensive push strategy of development that is almost exclusively resource-based. With good intentions, we push the resources that wealthy communities have and that poor communities lack in order to solve a problem. But as the efforts to push toilets into India at a rapid pace slows, push strategies don't always take root. They often are temporarily successful at best. A school, a hospital, a road, an airport, and even a toilet are all good investments, but when made in the wrong sequence, they can unintentionally cause more harm than good. Cambridge University economist Ha Jun Chang explores this phenomenon with regards to building rich country-style institutions in poor countries, in his book, Kicking Away the Ladder. To be clear, 
there can be real value in providing resources for those who lack. But in many circumstances, the expense outweighs the value we get when they are merely pushed into a region. Another way to think of it is like this. Push strategies treat poverty as a chronic disease that must be managed and for which there seems to be no cure. But this is a very expensive approach. In the United States alone, more than 80% of the nation's $2.7 trillion health care expenditures is spent on treating chronic diseases. The diseases are treated, but not cured. And for some, this may mean lifelong suffering. It is hard to believe that there isn't a better way. With poverty, it's possible we are doing the same thing, treating the pain by pushing a lot of resources, but not curing the disease, because treating the pain seems like the most obvious approach to making the patient better. But our current approach might be blinding us to what's possible. Push versus Pull Push strategies are often driven by the priorities of their originators, typically experts in a particular field of development, and generate solutions that are recommended to low-income countries. It is important to note that many of these resources being pushed are good things and are often welcomed by people in poor countries. Unfortunately, however, they are often pushed into a context that isn't quite ready to absorb them, and that can turn what started out as a good thing into something profoundly disappointing very quickly. Consider, for example, the fierce competition that occurs every few years to host the FIFA World Cup, one of the most prestigious sporting events in the world. National federations around the globe launch ambitious campaigns to convince their local citizens that spending millions and even billions to prepare the region to host the World Cup would be hugely beneficial. There is always a flashy media event in which the winning host is announced to the jubilant cheers of local crowds. Flooding their local region with new resources and infrastructure as they prepare for such a vaunted international event will surely attract a huge influx of foreign visitors and money, create lots of jobs, and ultimately benefit the city's economic development, the thinking goes. But in reality, those original promises almost never bear out. South Africa, for example, did a wonderful job hosting the 2010 World Cup, defying critics' expectations that the country would fail to finish the needed infrastructure and security improvements. But even so, the country ended up recovering only 10% of the $3.12 billion it invested on transportation, telecommunication, and stadiums. In the years after the World Cup, the visible reminders of that spending perhaps most notably a purpose-built stadium near Cape Town, have come to symbolize the worst of FIFA's legacy in South Africa, according to the New York Times. It is a superfluous megastructure unwanted by the wealthier, mostly white residents nearby, and it is far away from the areas where soccer fans, who are mostly black and colored, live. The stadium has also become a strain on the public purse, costing the city at least $32 million since 2010. These funds could be better spent on the city's more urgent priorities, such as providing sanitation and houses for the poor. The lack of such services continues to be the spark that periodically ignites protests. The spending on the World Cup did not move the needle, at least not enough, in South Africa. Nearly a decade later, 
South Africa still tops the World Bank's list of countries with the most income inequality, with more than half the countries still living below the national poverty line. By contrast, what we call pull strategies are different from push strategies in almost every way. Consider the case of education, for example, and more specifically, our investment in human capital, which is often far more successful at taking root when it is pulled into a society as a response to demand. This demand is brought about by an economy that can absorb the knowledge and skills being taught to students. I became acutely aware of this after I began serving on the board of Tata Consultancy Services (TCS), one of the world's largest IT companies. With almost 400,000 employees, TCS is one of the largest private sector employers in India. Over the past several years, in order to meet the demands of many of its clients, who are asking for more and more digital services, including data analytics, mobility, cloud computing, and Internet of Things. TCS has pulled digital education into its business model. The company has trained 200,000 employees on more than 600,000 competencies in digital technologies, and it doesn't seem to be slowing down. When TCS trains employees, new hires or existing hires, it is usually based on market demand or project specifications. This way, the education is relevant almost immediately. The employee understands why she is learning, and the company understands why it is investing. Our research suggests that pull strategies over time are far more effective at triggering sustainable prosperity. First, they are often originated by innovators on the ground who are responding to the struggles of everyday consumers or specific market demands. Second, pull strategies have more of an investigative or inquisitorial approach to problem solving. As opposed to a more advocacy or assertive approach, the innovators are there to learn and then solve problems in a sustainable manner, as opposed to pushing, however well intended, what they believe to be the right answers to particular development puzzles. Every quarter, for instance, TCS takes stock of the skills it needs to pull into the organization and invests accordingly. Third, pull strategies focus on creating. Or responding to the needs of a market first, it is then the job of the market to pull in the resources it needs to survive. In essence, pull strategies emerge from a burning need to make something work. They almost will a solution into existence, however imperfect at first, because it is a critical part of creating or sustaining a market. Market creating demands breathe life into a pulled-in solution. Allowing them to take root. Consider, for example, the extraordinary impact one noodle company has had on Nigeria's economy. 4.5 billion packs of noodles and counting. Perhaps the most beloved consumer product in Nigeria is also one of the humblest, Indomie instant noodles, sold in single serving packets for the equivalent of less than 20 U.S. cents. The brand enjoys near universal name recognition in the country, maintains a 150,000-member fan club with branches in more than 3,000 primary schools, and sponsors Independence Day awards for heroes of Nigeria to celebrate the accomplishments of exemplary Nigerian children. You may not have heard of it, but Indomie is a household brand name in Nigeria. 
In 2016, I was honored to speak at the annual conference of Harvard Business School's Africa Business Club. With approximately 1,500 attendees, it is the largest student-run conference on business in Africa in the world. In my talk, I referenced Toleram, a fascinating company we had been studying, only to receive blank stares in the auditorium. But when I said, these are the guys that make Indomie noodles, the crowd went wild. Why would noodles cause a crowd to erupt in raucous cheers? And, more important, what in the world does that have to do with development and prosperity? What Toleram, through Indomie noodles, has done in Nigeria is astonishing. Since its entry into Nigeria in 1988, when Nigeria was still under military rule, Toleram has invested more than $350 million to create tens of thousands of jobs, developed a logistics company, and built infrastructure including electricity and sewage and water treatment facilities. In addition, Toleram has built educational institutions, funded community organization programs, and provided millions of dollars in tax revenues. Perhaps the most visible evidence of this strategy is that the company has taken a lead role in developing a $1.5 billion public-private partnership to build and operate the new Lekki deep water port in the state of Lagos, Nigeria's commercial capital. Without overstating it at all, Indomie noodles is development. Toleram has shown that out of very little, a market can be created, and with the birth of a market come the attendant benefits that can lead to development. Indomie noodles are so woven into Nigerian society that it might even surprise Nigerians to recall that noodles are not among their traditional foods. Toleram has only been selling the product in the country for about 30 years. The company's growth track turns the conventional wisdom about development on its head. In 1988, the year Toleram began selling Indomie noodles in Nigeria, the country was far from an investment magnet. Nigeria was under military rule. Life expectancy for its 91 million people was 46 years. Annual per capita income was barely $257, approximately $535 today. Less than 1% of the population owned a phone. Only about half had access to safe water. Just 37% had access to proper sanitation. A staggering 78% lived on less than $2 a day. But even in these dismal circumstances, brothers Haresh and Sajen Aswani saw a huge opportunity to feed a nation with an affordable and convenient product. For them, this represented an enormous market-creating opportunity. Indomie noodles can be cooked in less than three minutes and, when combined with an egg, can be a nutritious, low-cost meal. But in 1988, the vast majority of Nigerians had never eaten or even seen noodles. Many people initially thought we were selling them worms, recalls Deepak Singhal, currently the CEO of Toleram Africa. The Aswani brothers were convinced, however, that they could create a market in Nigeria because of the country's growing and urbanizing population and the convenience their product offered. Instead of focusing on Nigeria's unfavorable demographics, they focused on developing a business model that would enable them to create a noodle market. The decision to target the needs of average Nigerians who are very poor compelled Toleram to make long-term investments in the country. In 1995, 
the company made the decision to shift noodle manufacture to Nigeria to better control its costs. In order to do so, Tolaram had to pull infrastructure such as electricity, waste management, and water treatment into its operations. I run a food company, but I know more about electricity generation than food, Single says now. Tolaram, just like TCS, also got into the education business through company-sponsored training in electrical and mechanical engineering, finance, and disciplines relevant to the business. Tolaram had to make these specific investments because the underlying infrastructure in Nigeria was either non-existent or subpar, so Tolaram pulled them in instead. And that, in turn, created more opportunity for prosperity to begin flourishing. Consider, for example, what happens when Tolaram pulls a recent graduate from a local university into its operations and provides employment and training for the new employee. First, the company increases the productivity of its own operations and, by extension, that of the region. Second, it reduces unemployment and, as a result, indirectly reduces crime, since people with jobs are less likely to engage in criminal activities to try to meet their basic needs. Third, it contributes additional income taxes and consumer spending. All of these things might have been core regional development objectives, but for the executives at Tolaram, they were just the natural result of operating their growing business. 36% growth, 17 years in a row. Like many other emerging and frontier markets, Nigeria has virtually no thriving, formal supermarket sector, and the path from factory to consumer contains many potential points of failure, or leakage, the process in which products are stolen or disappear before the point of sale. So Tolaram's managers chose to invest in a supermarket supply chain. This was by no means trivial, as the supermarket supply chain investment required Tolaram to build an entire distribution and logistics business. This meant the company built distribution warehouses and storefronts, purchased hundreds of trucks for its fleet, and hired thousands of drivers who would drive into neighborhoods selling cartons of Indomie noodles to retailers in both independently owned and Tolaram-owned stores. Tolaram's investments in distribution may have seemed like overkill, but Tolaram's executives knew they would never succeed if they couldn't get the product into consumers' hands. In many poor countries, companies might spend an inordinate amount of time thinking about how to make their products affordable, but may spend little time thinking about making their products available. This is, in part, because these companies don't see distribution as a core part of their business model. But at this stage of development in poor countries, it must be. In fact, investing in both affordability and availability is paramount to the success of a market-creating business. It is through this process of making one's product available, affordable, and therefore accessible that innovators create the right solutions for new markets. A market-creating innovation, then, isn't simply a product or a service. It is the entire solution. The product or service coupled with a business model that is profitable to the firm. In creating this solution, organizations do what is necessary, including building infrastructures, factories, distribution, logistics, sales, and other components of their business model. These, in turn,
begin to lay down a foundation of a region's infrastructure. This is what Tolaram did and continues to do in Nigeria. The company now controls 92% of the supplies essential to manufacture Indomie noodles and operates 13 manufacturing plants in Nigeria. This is no different from what the Ford Motor Company, Celtel, or Galance did when the circumstance called for it. It has been a tough journey, but that's to be expected because development, by its very nature, is hard. Tolaram's investments, however, are paying off handsomely by any measure, and Nigeria is reaping significant developmental gains. Today, the company sells more than 4.5 billion packs of noodles in Nigeria annually, making Nigerians the 11th largest consumers of instant noodles in the world, a product they barely knew existed 30 years ago. Tolaram directly employs more than 8,500 people, has created a value chain with 1,000 exclusive distributors and 600,000 retailers, and has revenue of almost $1 billion a year, all the while contributing tens of millions of dollars in taxes to the Nigerian government. Tolaram also created a logistics company that owns and operates more than 1,000 vehicles. The logistics company now serves both Tolaram and other Nigerian companies, with 65% of its revenues coming from external clients. Today, it is one of the largest corporate transporters in the country. If Tolaram had taken a different and more common approach to invest only when the circumstances were right or when the situation on the ground improved, it would likely not have achieved its stunning 36% year-over-year growth in a market it created 17 years in a row a market that has attracted investments from 16 other noodle companies and many other supplier and raw materials companies responsible for things like packaging, flour, palm oil, salt, sugar, and chili, and also distribution, advertising, sales, and retail. All these companies are now responsible for directly creating tens of thousands of other jobs in Nigeria. In order to build a market in Nigeria and other environments like it, Tolaram had to, and continually has to, internalize the risks that others perceive. This is one of the reasons behind the $1.5 billion public-private partnership to build and operate the new Lekki deep-water port in the state of Lagos. Once Tolaram is successful in building the port, the company will further reduce its costs and provide port services to other companies. If Tolaram had waited for the Nigerian government to address the infrastructure and institutions' challenges before investing, the company would still be waiting and would likely not be operating in Nigeria today. Ankur Sharma, former head of corporate strategy for Tolaram Africa, summarized the company's approach to self-reliance in February 2016. As we create a market, we do what is necessary to ensure success. In some countries, we have built power plants, in others, we have invested millions of dollars in transportation infrastructure just to move our products from the factory to the retail sites in line with our theme of controlling our own destiny by driving costs down. We are committed to whatever market we enter and will do whatever it takes to be successful there. A pack of Indomie noodles is simply a 20-cent packet of instant noodles. How can it matter so much? It matters because Indomie noodles represent the process by which poverty, through innovation, can become prosperity.
Tolaram's investments in Nigeria illustrate a fundamental principle that, when applied in a context of non-consumption and poverty, has a powerful impact on development and prosperity. It illustrates the immense potential of market-creating innovations to pull many resources into an economy. In addition, it also shows that, in some circumstances, localizing an innovation is necessary for success. Although the Aswani brothers are not native Nigerians, they are Nigerian by function. In fact, Haresh Aswani has been honored with a chieftaincy title in Ogun State, one of the highest honors a community can bestow on a person, because of his commitment to the economic development of Nigeria. Because of its investments and success in Nigeria, Tolaram has begun attracting hundreds of millions of dollars of foreign direct investment from major international companies into Nigeria. In 2015, Kellogg's, the American multinational food company, bought half of Tolaram's distribution operations in Nigeria for $450 million, and both companies commissioned a $6 billion Naira, $17 million cereal manufacturing plant in December 2017. Tolaram's Impact on the Nigerian Economy Currency Values in Nigerian Naira Total value added to the economy, N, $241 billion annually. Staff income, N, $7.6 billion annually. Government revenue, N, $4.5 billion annually. Investment in manufacturing sector, N, $70 billion. Direct jobs created, 8,570. Total jobs created throughout the economy, 42,850. Number of manufacturing plants, 13. Number of warehouses, 13. Number of distributors, 2,500. Number of sub-distributors, 30,000. Number of network and convenience stores, 290. Number of trucks and other vehicles, 1,000 plus. Number of other noodle companies, 16. And specifically, look at what Tolaram is pulling into the Nigerian economy. Electricity generation, water and sewage treatment plant, $1.5 billion deep sea port, education, specialized technical training on finance, engineering, and marketing for employees, logistics, Tolaram now runs one of the largest logistics companies in Nigeria, foreign direct investment, Kellogg's $450 million purchase of half of Tolaram's distribution operations. Sustainable Social Development Projects The Tolaram Foundation owns 25% of the Tolaram Group and invests in a wide range of social programs that benefit Nigerians, including providing prosthetic devices for Nigerians who have lost limbs, caring for orphans, and providing scholarships for students to attend school, to name just a few. The Power and the Necessity of Pull Tolaram was able to pull many components into the Nigerian economy that would otherwise have been impossible or, at the very least, incredibly difficult to sustain without the creation of a noodle market. The noodle market, in some ways, acts as a magnetic force that ensures educated students get employed, government revenues are generated to fund other projects, and new technologies get developed and used productively. All these things are pulled into the economy in order to grow the noodle market that Tolaram created. 
If we create a market that successfully serves a growing population of non-consumers, that market is likely to pull in many other resources an economy requires. This is the simple yet powerful mechanism of pull. The question still remains. Why does Tolaram need to invest in electricity, water, education, logistics, and so on, in order to deliver a pack of noodles to the average Nigerian? Surely, it wouldn't need to do this if it were operating in, say, the United States. The answer to that question, on when and whether a company should internalize and integrate certain costs, even though they don't seem core to the company's business, can be explained by one of the management theories I teach my students. The decision on whether a company should integrate certain aspects of its business model, bring them in-house and do it by themselves, or whether it should outsource them, depends on a theory we call interdependence and modularity. A company should develop an interdependent, integrated business model when it cannot depend on suppliers for specifiable, verifiable, and predictable inputs. In some cases, this can be access to constant electricity, quality raw materials, or even well-educated employees. Inputs cover anything an organization needs to ensure it properly accomplishes the job to be done for which customers hire its product. In other words, if the company cannot reliably depend on a particular input from a supplier to accomplish the customer's job to be done, then the company must integrate its operations create and manage all those inputs itself. For example, when Tolaram began operating in Nigeria, it had partnerships with several other companies for its packaging and logistics needs. Tolaram also depended on suppliers for wheat, flour, and oil. But because supplies from these companies weren't reliable, Tolaram had to integrate these components into its business model. It had to do these activities itself. If other companies were able to provide these supplies reliably, Tolaram would have been able to more easily outsource these activities to these companies. In this case, Tolaram would not have had to integrate as many aspects of its business model and would have developed something more modular. The company would have partnered with reliable suppliers in the same way many companies in the United States partner with UPS or FedEx for their logistics and shipping needs, or with other suppliers of things like electricity, water, raw materials, and so on. It was precisely because Tolaram could not find reliable companies that it decided to integrate many aspects of its business model. An interesting thing happened after Tolaram successfully integrated these other aspects of its business model, including logistics, packaging, electricity, and others. When other companies, many of which also needed these things, saw that Tolaram could reliably provide them, they began asking if Tolaram could sell those services to them. And just like that, a cost center was transformed into a profit center for Tolaram. That is the power of pull. Tolaram's infrastructure is Nigeria's infrastructure. Market-creating innovators do what is necessary, core competency or not, in order to create a new market that serves those who have historically been unable to purchase a product. The investments these companies make are not just the company's infrastructure, they become the country's as well. But perhaps most important of all is that market-creating innovations 
instill in citizens a culture that innovation is possible, even in dire circumstances. This is crucial because it is often in the process of developing market-creating innovations, which are simpler, more affordable, and therefore more accessible to the broader population, that a company necessarily pulls in the many things currently pushed onto poor countries in hopes of spurring innovation, development, and growth. Unfortunately, when these things are pushed before there is a market demanding them or willing to absorb them, the countries are seldom ready to maintain them. And so what we see with push initiatives are brand new schools that lose their value and deliver subpar education, new roads that become difficult to maintain, and institutions that are copied and pasted from prosperous nations that end up hitting the undo button. As a result, nothing remains permanent except perhaps the never-ending stream of well-meaning but unsustainable projects designed to help poor countries. But when a market pulls these resources in, they tend to stick. A Noodle Economy? We are under no illusions. A 20-cent pack of noodles, no matter how many are sold, cannot single-handedly develop Nigeria. But the principles behind Toleram's success can. Consider, for example, the sanitation problem in India through the lens of identifying a vast market-creating opportunity. That is the approach of the Toilet Board Coalition, TBC, a global consortium of companies, social investors, and sanitation experts that are attempting to catalyze market-creating solutions to the problem. In what the TBC refers to as the sanitation economy, they've identified what they say is a $62 billion opportunity in India alone. There are three subsectors of the sanitation economy as identified by the TBC. The toilet economy, a product and service innovation that provides toilets suited to all environments and incomes. Type of work includes household and public toilet fixtures, maintenance, repair, hygiene products. The circular sanitation economy. Toilet resources, human waste, feed into a system that replaces traditional waste management. Type of work includes collection, transportation, processing of human waste, and turning it into products like organic fertilizers, protein oils, and more. The smart sanitation economy. Digitized systems that ensure operating efficiencies and maintenance, besides consumer use and health information insights. Type of work includes consumer and health data collection, analysis, and distribution, sensors, and data transmission. This is the biggest opportunity in a century to transform sanitation systems into a smart, sustainable, and revenue-generating economy, Cheryl Hicks, executive director of the TBC, believes. Hicks notes that each year over 3.8 trillion liters of human waste are generated, which companies can use to produce treated water, renewable energy, organic fertilizers, protein products, and so on. Innovation can really affect transformational change, Hicks says. Just look at all the ways people are exploring creating product out of the system in the form of capturing biological resources, energy, fertilizers, plastics, protein, even data to help us understand, digitally, a community's health. For example, she says, 
Innovation is helping create data trackers that can help identify, early on, outbreaks in a community, long before hospitals and clinics are flooded with seriously ill people. Similarly, smart technologies can help shape business and health decisions, as well as influence policymaking. Moreover, various other industries could also participate in the emerging sanitation economy. One market can be created, Hicks predicts, which will, in turn, generate other related markets. Identifying the opportunity and then innovating around a market-creating solution may just help India pull in the sanitation infrastructure it desperately needs. Banking without banks. Movies without TVs. We have observed the power with which poll strategies can serve as catalysts for long-term change. Consider how this played out in Kenya when 20 million people adopted the mobile money platform M-Pesa into their lives in a very short time. Before M-Pesa, the traditional banking system in Kenya served fewer than 15% of the population. Also, in 2007, the year M-Pesa was founded, Kenya had just over 1,000 bank branches for its 38 million people. But M-Pesa, an innovation built on top of the mobile phone, was pulled into millions of Kenyan homes and today transacts more than $4.5 billion a month. A traditional push approach would have meant setting up many more bank branches in Kenya, hoping it then spurred people to join the existing banking economy. But that would have likely been significantly more expensive, reached far fewer people than M-Pesa, and taken longer to have any kind of impact. Or what about Nigeria's Nollywood industry? You may not have known that Nigeria has a thriving movie industry, but that's probably because Nigerian movies are created to serve non-consumption for Africans and Africans in the diaspora. In terms of number of movies produced annually, Nollywood's 1,500 movies is second only to India's Bollywood, a surprising statistic in a country where fewer than 60% of people have access to electricity and only 40% of households have a television. Nollywood has been able to thrive precisely because it targets non-consumption. Before the advent and proliferation of Nigerian movies, most Africans consumed Hollywood and Bollywood-produced movies. There were few movies that spoke to the lives of average Africans, taking into consideration their cultures and experiences. As such, while Western and Indian movies were interesting, they were not relatable. Nollywood changed that. Nollywood's annual revenue of roughly $1 billion pales in comparison to Hollywood's projected $35 billion in 2019. But that doesn't mean that Nollywood isn't having a significant impact on the Nigerian economy. The industry currently employs more than 1 million people, second only to the agriculture industry. In addition, Nollywood has been able to pull in better governance as it relates to piracy and copyright laws. Appreciating the importance of the industry as a major source of employment and potential income from the sale and export of Nigerian movies, the Nigerian Export Promotion Council, the Nigerian Copyright Commission, and the National Film and Video Censors Board are now collaborating on programs to reduce piracy in the industry. No one gets fired for building a well. If pulling 
seems to be a more effective strategy than pushing, then why don't we dedicate more of our resources toward pull strategies? There are several reasons for this, one of which is that no one really gets fired for pushing. Think of it this way. No one gets fired for building a well in a poor community. There are few more satisfying images in poor countries than gushing fresh well water, students in fresh school uniforms seated in a shiny new classroom, or ribbon-cutting ceremonies for fabulous new roads or hospitals. By contrast, there are also few more depressing images than broken wells, school-aged children on the streets, or abandoned infrastructure projects. What could happen if we changed our emphasis from push to pull? What if much more of the $143 billion spent on official development assistance in 2016 was channeled to support direct market creation efforts in poor countries, even when the circumstances seemed unlikely? Imagine how many markets could be created. Imagine how many Tolerams, Nollywoods, M-Pesas, and other new market creators could emerge. Imagine how many jobs could be created. As I think about this problem, I can't help but wonder how many fathers and mothers would be afforded the dignity of work and the resources to provide simple things for their families, like food, health care, and quality education. Imagine how many people would have a renewed sense of hope and purpose when they begin to see their suffering can become a thing of the past. We are the first generation in human history that can end extreme poverty, Jim Kim, president of the World Bank, often says. He may be right, but this will not happen if we continue focusing our efforts on ending poverty. That's the paradox at play. Section 2. How Innovation Created Prosperity for Many Chapter 5 America's Innovation Story The century of revolution in the United States after the Civil War was economic, not political, freeing households from an unremitting daily grind of painful manual labor, household drudgery, darkness, isolation, and early death. Only 100 years later, daily life had changed beyond recognition. Robert Gordon, The Rise and Fall of American Growth, The U.S. Standard of Living Since the Civil War. The Idea in Brief Imagine a country where average life expectancy is just 45 years, infant mortality a staggering 200 deaths per 1,000 births, and fewer than 5% of people have access to indoor plumbing. In this country, the average person spends approximately 52% of their hard-earned income on food. There's little help from the government, and corruption is rife at all levels, from local to federal. Cronyism, not merit, determines most civil service jobs. What impoverished country would you guess this is? It's the United States of America in the 19th century. Though we usually don't think of it this way, America was once desperately poor, poorer than some of today's most underdeveloped economies. Considering where it once was, America's transformation into an economic powerhouse is extraordinary. But as we will explore, at the heart of America's transformation story is the same force that has driven many economies around the world from poverty to prosperity 
Market Creating Innovations. In spite of being impoverished, unregulated, and poorly infrastructured, America became fertile territory for scores of innovators and entrepreneurs seeing opportunities where others saw nothing. In this chapter, we profile the innovators behind several of the most spectacular market creating innovations in American history Isaac Merritt Singer, George Eastman, Henry Ford, and Amadeo Giannini. Of course, these innovators did not single handedly develop America. The country has benefited from the innovation of scores and scores of entrepreneurs whose work improved our lives. But collectively, they demonstrate the transformative power of a culture of innovation that allows prosperity to take root and flourish. We have an old fashioned Singer sewing machine in our basement. One of my neighbors left it out for trash, and I couldn't help rescuing it. It's rusted and worn. But it's still a beautiful piece of equipment. The pedals alone are works of art. I made it a personal passion project to refinish and restore it to its former glory. When I look at that sewing machine, I see more than just quality craftsmanship. I'm reminded of what it stands for. Isaac Merritt Singer may not be the most famous American innovator, he's not even credited with actually inventing the sewing machine, but Singer's impact on American culture cannot be overstated. We may forget now, but in Singer's time, America was not a prosperous country. Not only were most Americans poor, but many, especially in urban centers, lived in squalor. In the tenements of many large cities, sewage spewed out onto alleyways, garbage was dumped outside apartments and left to rot, and horse manure lined the streets. The typical North Carolinian woman walked 148 miles and carried more than 36 tons of water in a year. Just fetching the daily water for her family. We may all lament our current fears of increasing crime rates in some American cities, but for many of us, our grandparents were not only much poorer than we are today, but also less safe. The murder rate in 1900 was far worse than it is now, double what it was in 2016. America's governments in the 19th century shared many of the characteristics of poor country governments today. Local, state, and federal government officials engaged in rampant corruption, taking kickbacks and bribes from legitimate businessmen and illicit actors alike. Bosses ran big city political organizations and indirectly controlled city services such as utilities, police protection and security, trash collection, and transportation. Some gave handouts to the poor in exchange for votes. For most, working conditions were deplorable. And industrial accidents were all too common. In December 1907 alone, close to 700 miners lost their lives. Many children, some as young as 11 years old, began their careers in factories and mines, where they were paid a pittance. In 1904, we actually had a National Child Labor Committee to lobby for the rights of children. As many as 14,000 children worked legally in coal mines. Women were paid a little more than children. Wages at the time, even for men who were better paid, were seldom enough to rise out of poverty. Workers frequently went on strike. Sometimes the state militias were sent in to quell these protests, and other times wealthy business owners conscripted their own private militias to do the same. There were sometimes deaths. This was not the relative peace and stability of America today.
America was ad hoc and chaotic. At one point, the country had more than 80 time zones. Noon in Chicago was 11.27 a.m. in Omaha and 12.31 p.m. in Pittsburgh. But a generation of American innovators and entrepreneurs began to change America's circumstances, including how the country kept time, a change brought about by the proliferation of the railroads, succeeding against what might have seemed staggering odds by pioneering market-creating innovations with new business models that allowed those products to become simple and affordable. In their day, the innovators we profile in this chapter, Isaac Singer, George Eastman, Henry Ford, and Amadeo Giannini, were entrepreneurs and innovators who just wanted to see their market-creating innovations take hold. But their impact on American prosperity would be far more profound. It's almost impossible to calculate the exact impact that these innovation pioneers had on the prosperity of America. But by any measure, it was enormous. When you view not just what they built, but the culture of innovation they inspired, it becomes clear that the real revolution in America after the Civil War was not political, but economic. In their stories of survival, we see the story of America's remarkable transformation. With Isaac Singer, we will illustrate the immense power of market-creating innovations. With George Eastman, the poor high school dropout who created Kodak, we will focus on the opportunity found in targeting non-consumption. We will revisit Henry Ford's story to demonstrate just how much the Model T was able to pull into American society. From gas stations to roads to how we earn and spend our money, Ford played a role in changing how we live, work, and play. Finally, we will look at how Amadeo Giannini fundamentally changed the dominant business model of banking at the time and all of our lives in the decades since then. A bank that lent to poor immigrants became what we now know as Bank of America, creating some of the essential banking practices that we all count on today. The success of these four innovators, and scores more, had enormous ripple effects across the American and even global economy. As a culture of innovation began to emerge in America, one in which entrepreneurs looked to serve more and more non-consumers, a virtuous cycle of prosperity creation was set in motion. An industry is born. Isaac Singer's impact on the world might have been difficult to predict when he was a young man. Born in New York in 1811 to poor German immigrants, the uneducated Singer wanted nothing more than to become an actor. A short stint as an apprentice in a machinist shop when he was 19 gave him a career fallback plan, but he had no intention of earning his living that way. He tried to find his fortune on the stage without much success, until one day he found himself tinkering with an existing but imperfect sewing machine design. On paper, the idea of a sewing machine made sense. At the time, even a skilled seamstress could produce only 40 stitches a minute by hand. But no one had yet been able to produce a reliable machine that could do much better. Singer saw an opportunity to improve the machine. With mechanical improvements that made the sewing machine simpler, less expensive, and more reliable, Singer's sewing machine enabled an unskilled person to produce 900 stitches a minute. That meant that the average time it took to stitch a shirt 
went down from about 14 hours to just one. Experts who knew much more about tailoring and clothing predicted he would fail. Who would buy it? It seemed inconceivable that American households that could barely find money for fabric for a new shirt would find money for a fancy sewing machine. Would women even be able to operate such a machine? Skeptics asked. But Singer was not daunted. His success eventually came after teaming up with a lawyer, Edward Clark, to create I.M. Singer & Company. Together, they innovated not only their product, but also their business model to ensure they could survive in a challenging business and legal environment. These innovations included creating branch offices, sending out door-to-door -door sales and service staff, offering lessons to customers on how to use the product, and extending credit to cash-strapped customers. A typical Singer sewing machine retailed for $100, roughly $1,400 in 2017 dollars, but with as little as $5 down and a monthly payment of $3, a family who earned just $500 a year could own a sewing machine. Though familiar to modern-day Americans, these business model innovations were unprecedented in Singer's time and they led to extraordinary growth. In 1858, the company had annual sales of just 3,000 units. By 1863, when a tailor named Ebenezer Butterick began selling dress patterns in standard sizes, making it easy for anyone to copy a dress design to make it home, the Singer sewing machine had become America's most popular sewing machine and was on its way to a worldwide monopoly. By 1873, demand was so high that Singer had to build the United States' largest sewing machine factory with a manufacturing capacity of 7,000 units per week. Ten years later, the company built Europe's largest sewing machine factory, where it produced 10,000 units a week. The Singer sewing machine would eventually build an international organization that manufactured more than half a million sewing machines in Europe and almost 400,000 in the United States annually. This led to vast numbers of jobs in sales, distribution, maintenance, manufacturing, advertising, training, bookkeeping, and beyond. While Singer's direct economic impact was impressive, its indirect impact was arguably even greater, catalyzing other innovations and industries, and also spurring the construction of new infrastructures. For example, small shops began to open in the poorest districts of New York and Chicago to serve as subcontractors to larger manufacturers who had developed a standardized, task-oriented production system, a predecessor of the modern-day supply chain. All a manufacturer had to do was cut and mark the cloth with a particular design and then package and ship it to the small shops with instructions on how to sew the pieces. Entire families took part in this process, leading to higher incomes and better life prospects. Singer's sewing machine was also an unexpected boon to the closet or wardrobe industry. Where were people going to put all their new clothes? First, they needed wardrobes, and then they needed bigger wardrobes. Another industry was born. Perhaps most notably, the Singer sewing machine revolutionized the clothing industry, which doubled in size between 1860 and 1870, eventually reaching a billion dollars by 1890. $26 billion in 2018 dollars, making it possible for a customer, knowing his or her size, 
to shop at the newly emerging department stores of the late 19th century. Increasing demand for sewing machines also led to booms in the steel, wood, and cotton industries and the creation of several others. It also, in turn, impacted the shoe industry, which could then sell its wares at those department stores too. As these new industries and markets were created, they began to pull in the infrastructure and institutions they required to survive. The I.M. Singer Company actually built rail lines to more efficiently transport the company's sewing machines. The company also built a turbine power station for their factory in Podolsk, Russia, which eventually provided electricity to the whole town. In Moscow, their foundry shop supplied pig iron to nearby cotton mills. And in Scotland, they built a railway station that is still functioning to this day. This all happened without the direct help of governments. In fact, the I.M. Singer Company actually helped the governments by generating taxes that would fund many public services. In 1890, for instance, Americans didn't expect much from their federal government. The United States federal government managed the military, foreign policy, land, the treasury, and tariffs. They didn't do much else. For example, there were no federal agencies for labor, that would not come until 1913, Veterans Affairs, 1930, Health and Human Services, 1953, Housing and Urban Development, 1965, Transportation, 1967, Energy, 1977, and Education, 1979, until well into America's life as an independent nation. These agencies would form and evolve over time in response to public outcry of some sort or to manage the affairs of a new and thriving market. The Department of Transportation, for instance, came almost 60 years after Henry Ford's Model T. In many instances, there were precursors to the federal departments, but they were smaller, were less of a priority, and thus wielded much less influence. But that didn't matter to innovators like Singer. The same was true for George Eastman, whose innovation has enabled millions of us to preserve precious memories and communicate and connect through images. George Eastman's Kodak, Picturing the Future Today we take for granted how simple it is to take pictures and preserve memories. From pictures of our unforgettable family vacations to photos shared with us of faraway lands we may never visit, we are bombarded daily with images. By some estimates, we upload more than 657 billion photos every year. One writer put it this way, Every two minutes, humans take more photos than ever existed in total 150 years ago. But images weren't always so widely accessible. Photography was invented in the 1830s, but even 50 years after its invention, it was still a practice limited to highly skilled professionals and to those who could afford its high cost. This is because photography required knowledge of chemistry and expertise working in wet labs. In addition to the camera, photographers required lots of additional equipment like chemicals, glass tanks, and heavy-duty plate holders and tripods. Photography was very expensive and impractical until George Eastman set up the Eastman Kodak Company, which targeted the vast non-consumption of photography that we can now see in retrospect. Born on July 12, 1854, 
George Eastman was a high school dropout, and, according to schooling standards at the time, he was not particularly bright. To make matters worse for Eastman, he was born into a poor family and had to support his widowed mother and two sisters, one of whom suffered from polio. Eastman began his professional career as a bank clerk, a job he took to help pay his family's bills. It was through the work and ingenuity of this former clerk that millions of non-consumers of memories, pictures, and photography became consumers. Eastman's innovation and the vast market it created led to immense economic prosperity, job creation, and the development and expansion of many billion-dollar industries, including advertising and motion pictures. When Eastman was 23, a colleague suggested that he take a camera on an upcoming vacation, an idea that thrilled him. Eastman quickly learned, however, that cameras were heavy, awkward, and expensive, and that the set of gear required to develop photographs was expensive, too. So he began to work at finding a better way to take pictures and develop photography, and spent three years experimenting at his mother's kitchen table until he got